Ja, hallo und herzlich willkommen zu einer Welcome to another session of the Corona Investigative Committee. It's session number 111, Reconstellation is what we titled it. And we're going to enlighten that title in a minute because we have a guest who can comment on it. It's Jochen Kirchhoff. I'm happy to have you with us today. And I think we'll kick it off straight away. Okay. We have one uh, little video that we can play uh, on the topic of reconstellation, a little video with Professor Jay Bhattacharya, who again explains that we live in an illusion or have been so doing so in the last uh, two years. Maybe we can drill down on what we say and what we hear. I don't know what's going to come, but I'm sure we can look into it. Uh, in the United States, a man named Francis Collins, very famous man who was responsible for the Human Genome Project, wrote an email four days after we wrote the Great Barrington Declaration to Tony Fauci. Everyone know Tony Fauci? Who's ever heard of him? The, the email called me, Martin Kulldorff, and Sunetra Gupta fringe epidemiologists. Fringe epidemiologists. Uh, my friend's business card, I see if I brought it with me, that has has fringe epidemiology on it. If the Great Barrington Declaration is the fringe, I don't really want to be at the center, I think. Uh, so uh, the, the response was fierce, and it was a propaganda campaign. And the question is, why? Why was there this propaganda campaign to suppress common sense? It's very simple. Because we locked down, right, as the, as the strategy. A lot of people, a lot of powerful people were dead wrong about the right response. And they needed in order, and remember October 2020, there was, a, there was an active debate in the UK and elsewhere whether there were going to need, we were going to need another lockdown in the winter of 2020. People at the World Health Organization, Health in the United States, they wanted to create an illusion that all scientists agreed in favor of lockdown. It's an illusion of a false illusion of consensus that did not actually exist. And so the Great Barrington Declaration, not because I wrote it with, with Sinatra and, and, and Martin, that, that wasn't the real thing. The real thing was tens of thousands, tens of thousands of scientists and almost a million regular people signed on. And it shattered the illusion that there was a consensus in favor of lockdown. The question to me is, how do we make sure that this never happens again? because this isn't the last respiratory pandemic that we're going to face. Um, and the powers, and Asim has, has been fantastic on this, the powers that, that to, to create the lockdown, to create the, the pathologies in public health that we had, will, will come back again if we don't work together to fix it. That's what we'll do. We're working on ensuring that this won't come back. And um, to this end, I think we have to understand the great uh, bigger picture to uh, see that what he just called a great illusion doesn't play a role. And for the uh, greater picture, you have to take a look at the cosmos. And we have Mr. Kirchhoff here for this. We have a few notes. You're a philosopher and um, researcher on um, Awareness, uh, transcendent natural philosophy is your um, focus. You you worked at the Humboldt University in Berlin for many years. You're the author of um, numerous books and essays, and you have a YouTube uh, channel. You can uh, talk about the um, 
object, uh, the function and the um, limits of the role of science in uh, the present against the background of its uh, rise. The f uh, consequences of the existing uh, science concept and the worldview uh, resulting from people's self-understanding and the resulting open um, side of control mechanisms uh, for totalitarian systems. We have a quote from you, we need a fundamental redefinition of what science is or should be. I have a question in this context. Are you talking about the science we know or we uh, thought that we knew? Well, that's a science that is uh, verifiable and incorruptible. And over the last two years and more recently, I learned um, very clearly, uh, much more clearly even, that uh, most of science is uh, corruptible, uh, particularly uh, the medical science, particularly in the U.S. Um, Mr. Uh, Djalkovic um, confirmed that Patrick Wood, a an economist and at the same time a geopolitician and historian said that it makes a difference uh, whether you look at science on the one hand, i.e. what I try to uh, call uh, incorruptible on the one hand and scientism is uh, opposed to scientism which uh, simply um, writes a um, uh, an expert opinion to order. No, that's not really the problem. It's part of the problem. We are well aware of that. Uh, bought and science is uh, known and that science runs after money, following power interests, all given. But you have to look at one more thing, and that is in science in general. What is science? How did it come about? What can it do and what can it not do? And that is an important point. If you haven't understood that, you can't understand the problem. And I try to settle all this area up at the root and um, do a fundamental criticism, which I've been working with for over 50 years that I've been dealing with these issues consciousness and so on, what's material, matter, what is light and these things. And then especially Corona has made that very clear again to me that many people have no idea of that. And this is what we have to make them become aware of that uh, the Corona religion or madness, however you want to call it, that this has a pretext which is not necessarily uh, uh, reaching back into the so-called uh, science. Uh, maybe let me give you an example, abstraction. Uh, that means um, turning your gaze away from live matter um, is uh, not there to, means that science is not there to explain life. I can tell you when that was and explain the human being in its full vividness. But right from the start, it was an abstract access. It was a skeletonization of that and splitting up the world into little details, trying to explain it, hardly giving any background explanation of it. And that that has a big connection with technology that uh, is something that becomes clear. If you look at when did science come about in the sense we know it, um, it started, maybe I can say this here, by the challenge of Copernicus. At that point when the Earth 
moved outside of his resting position to speed in the cosmos, everything changed. That was no problem for Copernicus. He mathematized it, but uh, for him, he didn't think about what that means physically. And then the physics came in saying, how is that possible? And what does that mean if we live on a ball uh, racing through space with 30 kilometers per second and we don't note it? What does that mean? And then a question came up, what is the stars? How do they move? Uh, what is movement at all? And this is something that new science or modern science initiated and driv drove it forward. And that's the point that we have to take as an approach. Was what, what was that? If we look at Galilei, what did he do? Galilei, from the start, so after Copernicus, um, that was all confirmed. And uh, so Galilei came later and he approved what he found. What did he do? He explicitly, um, took the question of what things are, the existence of things, and excluded it and limited himself to mathematician, to quantifying, and in that sense, skeletizing the world. He was a Catholic who didn't uh, think to get in collision with the church, but uh, he favored a certain uh, question and basically he uh, excluded the research himself, and that's what we see until today. It plays no role, the, the researcher plays no role, and the quantifying of the world. Um, this is where I am, the unknown X, the subject, and outside of that is the world, and that is split up, it's mathematized into different sections, and the outcome of that is then uh, made predictable, you can make prediction, but it never has anything to do with life. Life, emotion, um, that was completely excluded and a subject, and you can doubt, or colors even, uh, so that was subjective. The person, the human being as such, um, in, in his greed, in his helplessness, in his condition of being, was not important. And uh, so human being could be as they liked, but in science, they had to get in line with only the quantity counting. And so, and mathematization. So Galilei asked, why does a stone drop? And what is gravity? And there was a lot of speculation about, and he doesn't care about the speculation. What well, he wants to put it into figures, the stone accelerates, you can have a simple formula for that. And that is enough for him. And with that, we laid out the tracks or the tracks were laid out, which led to fatality, that major questions were excluded and uh, major questions of beings were not addressed because they disturbed if you couldn't mathematize them. So the immense role that maths played in this, Copernicus as a mathematician, and Galilei was a mathematician as well. And again, he was a believing uh, Christ. And uh, he never, he was a pierced Christ, uh, a Christ, Christian. And he 
never wanted to get in trouble with the church. So one thing, um, all of this is not known. Even smart people, so-called intellectuals, have read lots of stuff, but they have no idea about history, the history of science. Why did Galilei collide with the church? That has to do with something different. It has to do with uh, Giordano, Bruno, Giordano Bruno. Uh, a cosmologist and natural philosopher. He was Italian, a genius um, on, uh, who was uh, burnt in Inquisition in uh, 16th of February, 1652. And uh, he was a, criticism, a criticism of Christianity as well. And he also favored the Copernican teachings, extending them to an infinite, infinite universe and uh, a non-vivid universe. And uh, he extended it quite strongly and at the same time criticized Christianity. And one of the inquisitors uh, who uh, ruled the death sentence on him was a certain uh, Buranino, a cardinal, um, who wanted to become pope. And exactly this person who ruled his uh, death, he was one of the main inquisitors against Galilei. They're only 20 years a difference of age and he thought to see a second Giordano Bruno which he wasn't by no means it was something completely different and that was very interesting because uh, the situation that comes from a completely different perspective and so there was the Christianity which had settled to a certain cosmology and then it became more and more difficult and the church kind of uh, got suspicious and they showed him the torture tools, but they showed them to him because before uh, they had uh, already uh, killed the most genius thinker, simply murdering him, um, the most spectacular uh, legal murder committed in all history. And this was the reason, and this was always, this is always the background against what we see now, the 400th anniversary uh, of the date of death of Giordano Bruno and so on. And uh, there was lots of magazines writing about these journals and uh, that all well, that came back and church didn't uh, in a way uh, showed mercy, but they're still their death enemy their arch enemy <clears throat> and um, Bruno is a difficult um, figure for science because even without a telescope he came to extraordinary findings and could foresee what others discovered so that's just the uh, the fringe of it and uh, this uh, this was a vivid path, and this uh, path that science took excluded everything which is life, and that is indoubtable. So, so if you 
take a little turn back to f the prisons. There's lots of intermediate steps which we could uh, detail here. That's exactly what happened in Corona crisis. We took an abstractionistic model. In this case, we know it was a laboratory science, and we took with a delivered, developed computer models, calculated all of them in a mathematical way, and then the life part was mercilessly pressed on to what we have in life reality. And that was pure madness. Ferguson and people like that, that's pure madness what they said, and, and Drosten as well, what all the claims that were made, that was quite clearly wrong. But um, that was the height of the empowerment. We have our science and we have the computer models. Um, and that plays a big role in all of that science. Without a computer model can't work and can't do. And Mr. Lauterbach, the health minister as well, any study um, that confirms it, he holds it up to the cameras. And uh, so there is a connection which normal, highly uh, trained scientists went down. And this path has uh, uh, been a long time ago. We can talk about nuclear weapons and so on in that context as well. But that uh, really celebrated a victory in Corona. So it was not in that sense a decategorization. It was a consistent carrying forward right down to transhumanism. And many people don't see that this is a continuous development. And so the vivid uh, aspects, the vivid cosmos was uh, refrain from and um, science focused on a mathematicalizable abstractum, which you can use to build machines. Okay, that's good to do. And that was a misdevelopment of science as such. So they didn't see uh, the essence anymore. I never uh, was convinced of this nonsense of modeling, particularly after Wolfgang Wodak told me that the same losers who came along with these models uh, tried the same thing uh, 12 years uh, ago already and failed at the time. So you can ask, you have to ask yourself, there's be more uh, happening here. How is it possible that somebody who should have lost all credibility uh, resurfaces like that? Well, that's a very difficult question to answer, Dr. Filmish. Um, there is a sort of basic stupidity um, in all of this. Let's uh, let's leave aside what uh, the situation may be on other planets, but uh, something went wrong down here in the brains of, of people or in, in general. And uh, I often have the impression that the earthlings, as I tell them, of course, uh, that's criticism as well, but um, extra, uh, aliens may be a better word, but I, I call them earthlings, which, which have a little flaw, and that uh, is something that makes them prone to any madness. And uh, as you said, that second approach, uh, there's many, many, many repetitions of this in similar cases. And this, in the end, also in context of political powers, led to the nuclear arms. And that's the disaster 
of physics and natural science, but there are, just to put it very, very bluntly, we have a contradiction of the live world as a whole, as a holistic cosmos that we have originated from and that we belong to. We are cosmic beings in some way or other, whether we want to or not. No, it's getting interesting now. Yes, and uh, that cosmic being is our home turf, so to say. And if we exclude all of that, and uh, declare cosmos a uh, hazardous desert um, with some oasis-like life in it, then uh, we take the anchoring out from the people, making human beings to be ghosts. Um, so human beings have become neurotic ghosts, so to say. And uh, natural sciences has uh, declared human being a nothingness, but this nothingness pretends to play the role of God. So this, um, this senselessness of the existence itself, which uh, plays a major role, and the arrogance, <clears throat> and all of that is all coming together now. And this little feeble human being plays God now. But that is not coming out of nowhere. They did so before. Um, there were the small transhumanists before, the little ones, one should better say. Um, so, in the way the trucks are laid down uh, by science, that is a part of transhumanism already. It didn't come out of uh, the, the thin air. And uh, it was always disastrous to a certain extent, although it came to proper results and good results in times and parts. But um, there's always a science that uh, includes the whole human being with all its physical body and everything. And that is not dead, just like in medicine. We've just seen this lately uh, by uh, Reuter in his book, uh, where he exactly showed this. The academic uh, medicine has completely failed everywhere. And that's really what things are like. And that's something that we have to bear in mind. And that's the contradiction. So for 50 years, I have been passionate fighting for the understanding that we live in a vivid world. And damn, that has to be understandable. How should life come from dead matter? That has never been proven. That's pure fiction. And that takes us to the next point. And then um, I'll allow you to ask more questions. We have, in the ideal characteristics, we have three types of science. One is empiric, with empiric evidences. That's um, something that you can observe. That's quite right. And um, we also have a large part of science, which one could, shall, could call hypothetical. So that means that's not real experience and observation, it's hypotheses. Hypotheses, um, what these are, these are assumptions about reality that could be verified or falsified. So an assumption about reality, which often is underestimated. A lot of things are simply hypotheses and have no connection to reality. And the third most difficult point is fiction. Uh, science always works with fiction as well. It has to. 
Um, we all work in our everyday life. We work with fictions in many aspects. For example, um, the um, street movement of uh, physical bodies is uh, an illusion, and uh, that's impossible. Every physician knows that, and it's never been proven that physical bodies move in a straight line anywhere. But most people think, uh, according to my life experience, I can say so, I say empirical science is a big field, everybody, everything observed. That is science. And the hypothetical science is kind of smaller, and fiction is even smaller. And I think it's exactly the opposite. I turn it all down, upside down, it's the other way around. Fictions are gigantic, and hypotheses are gigantic, and pure empirical science is minimum. I agree, yeah. I never um, was in favor of all this abstract nonsense, including in uh, um, the legal science. Uh, there's, you can't, it's not palpable, you can't do anything with it. Yes, you can't. Um, that is in science, that's the syscophony of the human, modern human being. Human beings split off in their uh, job, they are lawyers like you, uh, Mr. Frumich, or whatever. Hat maker, yes, what, whatever thing you want to be, you can be, it doesn't play a role. Um, in the weekends, you can do your Tantra seminar, you can do whatever you like, but as a science, that's completely different. You can play music, you can walk woods, but as a science, you are asked for a different role, and that's schizophrenic. Um, human beings, modern human beings, always have the impression uh, nobody's interested in what's going on inside them, their interior world, their psyche, their being, their fear of death. These are things that science is not interested in. That is kind of excluded from all observations. The lively human being is excluded. And that was the same thing that happened in Corona crisis with a brutal unilateral approach. Brutal inhumanity. Yes, absolutely. Inhumanity and inhumane. But in principle, this is something that is rooted in science. That doesn't mean you shouldn't simply cancel science. That's not what I want to get at. But I do think that it needs a reconciliation of science. And many other fa factors have to be accounted here for. Um, physics and natural science fails when it comes to consciousness. And we can talk about artificial intelligence and so on. That is a failure. And uh, only from the holistic approach of a human being is what makes that science possible. Everything else is madness. So it becomes most palpable for me if, um, in the context of the corona crisis, I look at the medical science. Wolfgang, have a seat. I've been listening for a while already. It becomes most palpable for me if I take a look at the medical science because ever more people reach the conclusion that what was presented as medicine uh, during the corona uh, period has nothing to do with medicine. Holistic medicine is um, a term that is understood these days. Um, that's 
physicians who look at the person as a whole, not that's the spleen, that's the heart, that's the kidney. They look at the whole person. Can you compare it, a holistic approach as necessary? And uh, was that around uh, pre-Copernicus? Because you that's where you started. With limitations. Also, that didn't, nobody plugged that from, from, from the air as well. So it was coming up already and it prevailed a bit afterward. But science in the way we know it only came about in the late 16th century. Of course, you can look back on where it derived from natural philosophy of antiques. Uh, so we can go through that. Um, what uh, did that think of science? That was holistic natural philosophy, cosmology, um, even in the pre-Socratarian times. Uh, so that is something okay, but it was a kind of suggestivity in that that science brought in that you could mathematize things and make mathematical prediction. That's astonishing that it, this is possible. That's a fundamental question. Um, I knew Mr. Heisenberg in person. I had uh, long discussions with him in '74. Uh, he was an elderly gentleman, and I was 30. Uh, so um, I, I intensively discussed with him, uh, including Goethe, including Newton, uh, the color uh, teachings of Goethe and Newton. And uh, in that context, I asked him, what do you want as a natural scientist, as a physician? If you could phrase that in a single sentence. It's always good if you ask someone to put their life view in one sentence. And uh, it took a while for him to send. He sat in his armchair, and I think he was a bit sick at the time already. He died a couple of years later. And then he said, I want to understand nature so exactly that I can make predictions. A classical phrase, I want to understand nature so well that I can make predictions. Um, correct um, predictions, right? But that includes the hybrids, doesn't it? Yes, absolutely. That's hybrids. It, uh, it has the inert disaster in it. Uh, also in his person, he was interested in good. That's something that you have to appreciate. And he... Uh, fought for Goethe's color teaching uh, to be um, uh, promoted, the theory of color Goethe promoted. And uh, it was such a suggestivity in that and resisting this by saying, well, it can't be, you can't do right predictions on wrong basis. That's well known. Um, we know the baby cycle, moder, mo, the cycle of uh, Copernicus. There was a big uh, circle and small circles on that. And with exact precision, he could forecast the position of stars much better than Copernicus could, very precisely. And still, it was pure fiction. You have to know that science as fiction, in that sense, it can be substantial if it makes forecasts, predictions, yeah, they could predict sun uh, uh, blacknesses and uh, eclipses of the sun and moon. Um, still, it was an abstract model that had nothing to do with reality. So how does that come about? It's interesting. Copernicus was not as precise than the geocentrics. 
let me call them that. Um, that was an interesting point. So physics and science as such um, takes models to make prediction. However, the models don't need to be right. It's not true. It's not real, to put it that way. Um, it, uh, so maybe it wasn't a lie, I wouldn't go that far, but it was a mistake. And many others um, perpetuated this. Isn't that simply the wish to simplify and generalize things, uh, to make it more understandable for others? Isn't that what we expect scientists to do? <clears throat> yes, we do want it now. That's quite right. But uh, this close framework that you've just got out, sketched out, okay. But this is uh, reaching into the philosophical basics of our being on Earth here. Uh, and all that has become very clear in that corona madness. Um, we are completely derooted and uh, people are made neurotics. I often say the modern person has got no, no neurosis. They are the embodiment of neurosis. Well, then I need to know what a neurosis is. Well, it's a split up. It's a split up in personality. Yeah, I've read that someplace. Well, that's... Um matches uh, Professor Desmet's analysis of mass formation, the precondition for this mass formation, this uh, mass migration of lemmings to their own demise can work is neurosis. He calls it uh, free-floating free anxiety. Um, it's not even been uh, caused uh, by coincidence. Yes, and in addition, if you look at science, uh, which has become a religion in, in far to far stretches, it's not just a corona cult. Um, all of that has a certain transcendency. Nothing new either, is it? No, it's nothing new. There was a certain transcendent, transcendentless religion that uh, occurred that sees death as the absolute end. And... Uh, um, the extension of life, uh, that is what what uh, is the uh, monstrous part of it, um, that the extension of life um, and the people have such a uh, desperation for belief um, that uh, if science cannot deliver that, um, we have a belief in science which is getting grotesque. I found it so interesting when we um, have uh, the requirement on medicine to have differential diagnoses, um, to preclude any th other diagnosis um, that uh, would cause similar symptoms. And that has changed in the clinics and the practices. This thing arrived, uh, there's uh, corona now, and that's the most important, uh, the most dangerous thing. And then all of a sudden, all other considerations of what else could influence people took, um, uh, well, faded into the background. And when there was particular incentives on going along with these narratives, and everybody joined in. And suddenly, the other instructions, um, all the other um, diseases that affect the respiratory tract um, were forgotten. Uh, it was forgotten that you can lose your sense of smell with other diseases, with the flu, for instance, as well. Even though it's been, it had been known for decades, all of a sudden, it all narrowed down to this narrative. 
and everybody agreed and it was really uh, successful this medical propaganda all narrowed down to this one thing yes but it's interesting that people believe so much in science all these so-called esoteric people or spiritual people um, are always happy if they can follow a kind of science some uh, some scientific proof so these things that are being told talked about quantum theory if you look in that that's uh, completely wrong uh, I thought so all the all along but what you just said uh, science is a religion we heard someone here as an expert Patrick Wood probably the uh, most successful well we can't say that but uh, the person who has been criticizing globalism the longest since back the, uh, in the 1970s who also has been looking at technocracy and transhumanism and we saw that in the US Fauci um, the, uh, the German counterpart being Drosten of course uh, gets up and says in an interview uh, if you criticize me you criticize science that is a uh, self-aggrandizement uh, of religious proportions um, he really Fauci really thinks he's God Almighty that can't go right well it has to go wrong of course but uh, there was a statement by um, Angela Merkel as well in the context of a statement by the Leopoldina and she said in um, the German Parliament it's like the law of gravitation our sciences and uh, this is really um, the point she really hits the nail on the head there that there is almost a sacral thing sciences uh, that cannot be questioned and mr Fermich, even in the so-called normal uh, science um, that is often the case and i've thought about it a lot that dogmas are created that cannot be questioned if you work in an institute for instance you have a head of institute who has a certain position and conviction and if a student which keeps happening uh, reaches a different results he has big problems to make himself heard and say well something might be wrong here and data is often and we have to say that they're oftentimes doctored um, that's not the main thing though um, but nevertheless, uh, data don't just exist and you can discuss them in your armchair. No, oftentimes they are doctored. And it also happens with computer data. That may be humane, uh, humanly understandable, but it's not great. Well, we've discussed this. Uh, this is a major problem. If you get stuck in a discussion, let's assume you don't know who's right. Let's assume there is two narratives standing against each other. We say it's all uh, bullshit, and uh, the other say this is right. How do we get into a normal, uh, good, fruitful discussion? Well, by jumping, uh, well, leaving your instinct and admitting that the other may be right. Well, well, it's difficult for the other person. Yeah, but you have to deal with it, um, and um, you have to be able uh, to discuss this, and you have to convince well, each other. Well, I've learned techniques on how to trick that out. Well, to a certain extent, Mr. Vodak, it's nearly inevitable. There is a certain, well, you discover something, or 
you're completely permeated by this, and then someone else comes along and criticizes it all. There's, there are mistakes here, and that's not true, and the cons uh, conclusion is not consistent. That really goes right uh, at your substance. And uh, in the past, um, in a controversy, scientists were pretty rough with each other. They really denigrated each other. You wouldn't believe that wasn't uh, great. That, that wasn't uh, gentlemanlike. That never rendered any ideas. Yeah, in the uh, last century, the, the 19th century, whenever. Let me give you an example. I'm uh, one of the most radical opposers of the Big Bang Theory in Germany, and I do believe I have good reasons for it. I have uh, discussed, had panel discussions with physicists, etc., etc. Now, what is it? How can you make progress here? If you uh, participate in a discussion round today and it is pre-understood uh, that you are a uh, an opposer or a critic of the uh, Big Bang Theory, you're not even invited. And I was only invited to a spectacular uh, event 22 years ago in Berlin because I didn't know that I was a critic. So the philosopher, uh, if I uh, may um, say so. The philosopher uh, is supposed to engage in uh, the humanities and they don't expect me to know anything about this in detail. So he's a philosopher, Mr. Kirchhoff. Um, what can he um, say in opposition here? And uh, Mr. Yugoshua um, moderated it 22 years ago, even back then, in his well-known way. And he asked, now, what does the philosopher say on the... Uh, Big Bang Theory in a friendly way, and um, and I told him, basically, it's an interesting hypothesis, but is it true? And suddenly, the entire atmosphere shifted, and we were spoke, uh, speaking about something else uh, altogether. Do you have a better story? Yes, I do, I do. Um, the better story is, well, we have to see Maybe that goes too much into detail. What are the uh, foundations, uh, the fundamentals, the galaxy spectrum? Uh, they are w well known and they can be explained in different ways. I can find a different uh, explanation that is in itself consistent as well. Never mind the idea what this is uh, supposed to be. So there are good arguments that I footed at the time and in this discussion, uh, there was someone from the uh, Ministry of Science. Uh, I was really uh, happy about it. And he said, and I was really happy about it. Um, but if what Mr. Kirchhoff says is true, and this seems uh, very uh, convincing, we'll have to think about who to give our research funds to. And that was the point to where uh, things got difficult. Do you know that interview with Heinz von Förster where he says um, uh, truth is the uh, invention of a liar? And he says, oh, there's nice stories um, that have been prevailing for decades and centuries where people agree, like the Genesis story, uh, that helped us for thousands of years to understand the world. And the Big Bang theory is a similar story. And yeah, of course, so of course. It says uh, the point is to have the best story. That's what people believe in. 
You need to have the right narrative, of course, and that also applies to alternative theories, uh, a good narrative. So do you think there is a truth? No, Mr. Fermi, you, you, you hit a point there with me. I'm a matador of truth. I'm certainly not a person who is postmodern, anything goes, not at all. I do believe that there is a reality, uh, just like there is a truth, which is one way and not another. It's not like it can be shifted or I don't, I'm not in favor that everybody uh, can create their own worldview or the world they want to live in. To say it again, I'm a matador of truth. I do believe, let me um, be a bit um, bombastic here. I do believe in truth and that it can be honest and earnest and that it must be verifiable and that would be good empirical science then. However, there are areas in science which in themselves are very difficult because they are indirect. So there are direct uh, uh, proofs, there's a direct proof and indirect proof. So there are very uh, complex ways of uh, finding evidence in science. But I really want to uh, move towards a um, enlivening of uh, science. I want to breathe life into it. And I've uh, wrote in my book, shown it in my in, in, uh, in numerous um, videos again and again that you can feel it uh, can see it as something live um, you can do that it's not a fantasy yeah it's about <coughs> creativity as well but it doesn't mean that i keep saying this is the truth no i'm saying it's a horizon for thinking which is opened up here and i'm not an internet guru who says this is the way it is uh, but i do present some uh, arguments and I appeal to people's um, ability to think. That may be in vain, but I do appeal to people's reason. And I do believe in argumentative reason, even though I know that it may be fruitless. But I do believe that argumentative uh, reason is important. And in my videos, I try to open up a um, horizon for thinking. And I try to show that you could think about these things in different terms. That's what I try to show. So I indicate how it, um, what's the official um, thinking, and I can explain it. I know how it was done. And then I um, point out these, uh, such and such a point is probably not uh, true. And then I, um, uh, offer people the opportunity of thinking for themselves. That's what I actually favor. Think for yourselves. Um, and um, I do believe a lot of uh, philosophers want to think for others. I do believe that um, it's a nice thing that you can think, that you're um, allowed to think, and that you really have to think. And I won't allow anyone to hush me up, particularly not the authorities. Well, they are not people, uh, leaders because of their way of thinking or the capability. They are leaders because of their elbows. Yes, and I do um, have the hypothesis that you may oppose authorities. Just because an authority said something doesn't mean it is true. Even if uh, many follow that authority, and Mr. Fulich, uh, there are really 
massive errors that um, are centuries old and which uh, are um, handed down through the generations. And it's very difficult to oppose these because if it shows, um, uh, if, if it turns out that you are right, um, subsequently it can be threatening to your existence if you're right. I have a question. If we talk about this abstract science and fictions that I said, that could be a truth, uh, a truthful approach to find the truth. But what we see here is quite untruthful approaches driven by other motives uh, to make profit, to keep your job, to support some kind of narrative or the RKRI. Um, he was the guy who said, uh, don't ask questions. Uh, uh, Vila was his name. Uh, how is that to be interpreted in this context? So somebody really uh, took the uh, the approach of normal scientific behavior, if we take that traditional approach that people want to find the truth. And now they don't look, they just look through the looking glass of the result they want to find. For example, Mr. Ferguson. So how does that to be interpreted in this uh, context? Because I have to have a completely different mindset if I want to achieve a certain scientific result. Well, yes, of course. And that is uh, really widespread in um, so-called standard science. It's really widespread, incredibly widespread, that you don't focus on the topic itself and the question at hand and uh, to try to find the solution uh, or the answer to the question. But if you know ahead of time that, okay, this and that might be uh, accepted by uh, people, then I can win a, an award, maybe even a Nobel Prize, and then you go down that road. But that is the fundamental difference, at least as we uh, perceived it prior to Corona and things that have opened our, our eyes. Maybe you were at this much, much earlier. We do assume that uh, serious people uh, have a scientific discussion. Each of them come with a thesis, antithesis, and synthesis. But in many cases, this is not the case. I just wondered when you said that it was quite tough discussions in the uh, 16th, 17th century. I know by the books from Judy Mikovics and the discussions with her, that since the 80s, at least, American uh, medical science has been completely corrupted. That people like Robert Gallo, who uh, discussed with Luc Montagnier about this, um, he didn't quarrel because Luc Montagnier did this, who uh, discovered the HIV virus, was caught off just before getting the Nobel Prize uh, by um, giving the Nobel Prize to Luc Montagnier. And I know about this. Robert Gallo, where he's a hoax, just like uh, like like uh, others are. Uh, Gallo, as Judy told me, he is uh, there is a person, the mentor of Julia, Dr. Frank Rossetti. He was the um, uh, he discovered the retrovirus, which can be dangerous for people. He worked in the institute, which was under the directorate of Gallo. So Gallo took that paper and simply uh, took Rossetti's name out to put himself in as the discoverer. That has nothing to do with science, does it? Yes, Mr. Famish, you're completely right. That has nothing to do with science at all. And it is fraud, yes, but it's always, there's always this undercurrent, of course, because the search for uh, pure truth 
is something that uh, some people actually pursue that. That's that's what I assume. Quite surely, yes. Maybe um, Jochen Kirchhoff uh, says um, that's the case with you. Yes, but but we humans, like it or not, are also dependent on authorities that we appreciate a lot. So if you appreciate certain people, then you uh, are inclined to give more credence to what they say than if you didn't like them or if you thought he is a charlatan in the first place. Well, our opinion doesn't come from nowhere. Yeah, it doesn't come from nowhere. And to a certain extent, it is understandable that there are many uh, people who just go along and we are a uh, society of, of hangers-on. Um, we don't need to discuss this. And there is a lot of hangers-on in um, science as well. People who just um, copy what they've heard before, particularly in this uh, extreme specialization where one can't verify what others say and th then it's just trumpeted into the media and the media Um, uh, Spiegel um, was always great at that. Uh, every um, new thesis in cosmology was uh, published widely by uh, the Spiegel, this uh, news magazine in Germany. And the fact that uh, I could write uh, well enough uh, 22 years ago was uh, a lucky coincidence, they said, okay, uh, Kirchhoff um, published a book on uh, Giordano Bruno. Um, so they said, okay, you can do that for Spiegel. But I um, also know that I had a hot discussion with um, the, um, the editor-in-chief at the time, and they didn't change a word, so like we discussed it, and they um, also uh, approved everything. Was that the science resort uh, manager? Do you know? Do you know who it was? Who was the uh, head of that resort of that? Uh, I don't know what the um, um, head of the department was at the time. Okay, it it uh, was something that was published, um, and I could give my view on Giordano Bruno without that being curtailed or tampered with, and that was possible at the time. I'm not claiming that it was possible in the past and it's no longer today. Maybe it still is possible today, but I would think that, well, it's less likely that it would be possible today. Humans are not free of the authorities. Um, you have to throw in the fear factor as well, um, the fear of making us uh, ridiculing yourself. One person who makes a, a presentation, Mr. Vodog, uh, this one person who said um, there are no viruses. No, you don't say that. I know that, but there are people who um, uh, claim it. This is a thesis that well, what uh, what's the conclusion then? Well, we have to see, we have to look at that discussion in detail. I know, I know this is, I know the discussion. That is simply something where you can't agree. You can find uh, a common ground on that to a certain degree. 
Yeah, to an extent, but Mr. Bodak, in physics there are controversies where you can't find common ground. Because it's contradictory. It, it's in this, uh, it's contradictory in itself because it's uh, mutually exclusive. Well, you do need a truth uh, sometime again. You can't just have everything pending. And we can find truth. Yes, we can. Yes, right. And it's also true that if you don't speak of a worldview explicitly and directly, even science, like uh, each of us, have their own uh, worldview, and that science works in the context of a certain worldview, and within, that's important too, uh, within certain preconditions. There is no science without preconditions. And if it is truth, I know, I know what you're getting, getting at. Well, we know um, that uh, the coronavirus can be controlled as well by uh, medicine as um, other viruses. So we know that we've been lied to. There's no two truths here. I think we're very, at a very philosophical level here. If we don't look for truth, and I really want to find the truth now, because I yearn for it, that can be a truth that, as we have experienced it, what uh, used to be true in the past is not true anymore. We've been through this many times in science, yes, of course. that things do change. But how do you know? How do you know that what you know today is going to be true tomorrow? Well, we, we can't. So it can't be true that we learn and learn and learn. Um, so. Oh, next year we'll find that it was a pandemic well, after all. If we had the, found the truth, we could stop searching. No, but it's interesting. Yeah, but what Mr. Vorak says is, has a point to it. Uh, the uh, What we know today can be the uh, mistake of tomorrow. So that is quite right. But I do think that we have to see, just to come back to that uh, global, that, that um, context of uh, the science starts with a dead universe as it's such. Uh, it doesn't assume that there is life, uh, that there are flows of beings of uh, spiritual soul matter as such. Well, that that may be a special, there may be, uh, not run, there may be a special case for certain reasons. We, we both know that. But um, in the bigger context of cosmology, I think um, there are so-called pre-assumptions, and that means everything that can be generalized is death, not life in science. You could say it the different way, the, the other way around. You could say that everything is alive, in whatever constellation that may be and at what level, and we are a part of that vividness, which is of that life, which I think is true, which is what Giorgiano Bruno believed, and that uh, life is what carries us. But science excludes this, and uh, we, as science, assumes a dead and ultimately senseless. Uh, uh, cosmos, because uh, that's the general nihilism, which um, reflects what people do. People uh, run around and have no sense in their life. 
and then they believe any any crazy lie that uh, somebody holds up in front of them. So that's the different approach. Uh, we have this the the two different approaches: the good universe full of life. You can see that, and then there's a seven, a second universe which doesn't exclude the first one. Um, which is uh, full of dirt matter. And uh, so, gr grossly saying, we have a life universe that we originated from that provides sense and dignity to our life here. This is cosmic difniki, cosmos, anthropos, anthropos, um, homo. Uh, so, that is, um, and that's the potential human beings have the potential of a cosmic human being and uh, that's where human beings are homed in an overall universe full of life and there is a counterflux of that which undermines this life and that's a matter of fact so those are the neurotic beings you described earlier well it's not the case as you've just said that you uh, you uh, attribute sense to what you see by interpreting it. So sense sense is something that you give. You attribute so you see this to something things. rational because it's rational. Yes, he has intu intuition as well. Let me finish. What, something that I can give, which I can interpret into something, and that makes me happy if I do see some sense in things. And in science, uh, it's often pretended as if sun, sense is something that is around and you just have to discover it, that you can measure it, or the, like the Big Bang or something. That's, that's where everything comes from. That's the sense of all of it. And... Uh, that's that's um, so I, where I say this, I'm, yeah. I'm happy if I can attribute sense to things. If I can say yes, that seems to be case that makes sense to me. Yes, I can understand this, and I don't think that this is a radical opposition. Allocating life is only possible because there is uh, meaning. But where does that sense come from then? Where do you take it where from? Where do I take it from? from the living cosm, he doesn't have a rational approach like you, he entrusts his intuition. So then there's a different sense for every human being? No, but people, some people don't notice it. Oh, the question of sense is a very difficult question. We could spend hours on that. Uh, I can do so if you look at it, if I see the way he look at me. And uh, so uh, assigning meaning to things is important and that's a great but uh, the, talking about the philosophy, philosophy it means love for uh, wisdom. And uh, this is the, the point. It's an ingredient of the world. There is a deep wisdom in the world, and that constitutes the meaning and makes it possible for us people at least well yes maybe for us human beings but maybe for any other being as well i do assume uh, an infinite cosmos there is uh, 50 billion uh, uh, inhabited planets and so on in our 
Why shouldn't animals be looking for a sense uh, for meaning themselves? No, or why, don't, why don't they do that? They don't need to do it uh, because they are implemented in certain ways they can't change. They notice themselves, Wolfgang. Uh, if there's an earthquake somewhere, they're the first to go. Uh, like, we're uh, stupid enough to hang around. That's an interesting, interesting question, dear Mr. Vodak. We could uh, t talk face-to-face uh, -face on that. I'd like to meet you and discuss that in something that I would like to do, uh, to meet you. But uh, if you can't see any meaning uh, or anything that goes beyond uh, pure matter, then you uh, come up with these ideas like uh, homo deus, um, etc., that you can shape everything uh, to your liking. They, they derive the idea of God from physical forms, uh, something derivable. Well, that's not what I mean. It, it also means that I can interfere with this um, universe. Well, they can calculate it, they can model it, and then they can do it better. But he's not even a physicist. I'm, I'm, yeah, afraid of that as well. Yes, uh, but you uh, mentioned the worldview uh, in the past and um, copycats and worldview, right? Yes. Um, in that term, let's look at the media. The media reflect the so-called quality media. Do so. Uh, they show what science tells us, and uh, at least they claim to do so. And many people who watch it believe it because they follow authorities, because they're hopeless in the end and they don't know what things really are. And they don't know the principles it's all bases on. That's what I noted in my long years at the Humboldt University in lectures and seminars. I found out that, first of all, you have to take make clear to people that these are assumptions, hypotheses, that certain preconditions that may be doubtful, that you can set up other ideas that would work just as well and that would make sense as well. So that is something that you have to settle a ground for. People are so believers that they believe everything that you they that they tell them like uh, time traveling will be possible it's never been proven never ever not in the slightest way and the fantastic things are all said about quantum uh, philosophy or theory that this is a kind of a magic science which is absurd it's pure fiction is it and it's a fundamentally human element and important for our survival as a species is that we can tell stories to each other as a group, as a uh, tribe, etc., to share a uh, worldview and to uh, con draw conclusions from it. Uh, so I think uh, it's important uh, that we understand that people um, why people believe this uh, the thing that's uh, that we're talking about now is so big um it's uh, so different from small deviations from uh, the uh, accepted worldview it's so far out of it that people can't uh, imagine it anymore well if we look back at the time before galileo there were intelligent people around uh, spilled out all over the world not being in contact and all of them had their ideas about the worldview, which were not a match. They set up and organized themselves. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And they were smart people that lived in their cultures which had no contact with each other, and they were completely contradictory in their worldviews. Yeah, that's clear, yeah. 
And the fact that this is only 500 years ago, that we are communicating and we have airplanes now that we can communicate and that means we have difficult to find a common denominator. Um, this is something what happened in older cultures, something that was accepted where they built temples where they thought this is the right thing and uh, huge Buddha statues and all these things. That's it. And now we're looking for, for one of that. And what do we do now with all of that? We have to come to a conclusion, but we haven't. We just kill each other because we still have different worldviews that collide. But I still believe, as we touched on earlier, that there is a truth, a reality, that reality cannot be uh, deliberately shifted. So there is something real. It doesn't necessarily have to be something physical and uh, palpable. So uh, we're not here only as physical beings. It's timeless, really, isn't it? Yeah, in a way. But um, what I was going to say is that if we get together as physical entities here, each of us feels that there's a lot more in each other uh, as well um, in Mr. Filmish, Ms. Fisher, or Wolfgang Vodak, I can see his uh, hairdo, for instance. So we can see um, each other and have certain impressions, but we can feel that there's more to everybody because people are more than their physical appearance. And that's the interesting thing. What do I um, feel um, when I see Mr. Fumich? Why is he laughing? What's he so happy about? Well, because I like what you say. I can follow you. I understand what you say. And that exactly this worldview thing, that is exactly the problem that many people are unable to move away from a finished worldview that has been guiding them over the last 70 years. And this is why they can't see reality as we have it, because that would make their worldview collapse. It's difficult for people who you, um, you know, you put the, uh, pull the rug under their feet. Yeah, but you can't help them, really. You can't help them, uh, really. And I really have to um, see that uh, reality uh, coincides with the truth. This, there is no nitpicking here. But the world has an uh, inside and an outside. We all have an inside and an outside. Uh, inside of me and outside of me is not the same thing. Well, if you look at him with an endoscope, the perspective will change. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, we have an inside and an outside, and that's the uh, the way of the world. It's not only the outside world, there's also the inside world. And that's my thesis, that uh, liveliness uh, means that everything physical has an inside that is not Im immediately visible that is however uh, something we can feel we can feel it in each other um, and we have an, uh, an inkling of what people are like and that all plays a role so the worldview is so fundamental as i said it earlier that even uh, if people have a very vague worldview they have it and there is a reality. If people tell me, well, reality uh, can be shifted or everybody makes their own reality, but your organism, your body, in its incredible complexity, the interplay of forces is proof that 
This is nothing that you can easily um, change. Well, what would other people know of my physical body? Do, do you know it? Well, well you the, know, the experience you know. that I have with my body? You can only make your own experience, that's true. But in principle, the situation is such that the uh, deliberate um, mo modifiability is a, a segment of the imagination. Uh, people have certain sizes, um, um, they have a certain shape. Um, that's no coincidence. That's all uh, designed. I understand that we, we, yawning. Well, he, well, you have a yearning, and he sees reality. Yeah. I have a yearning for simplification as well. Life is too complicated. Okay, anyway. <clears throat> well, looking at this collapse of the worldview, we see lots of things are going wrong at the surface and, other, and, and in depth. The question is, that's such a shattering of the worldview. For me, a massive shattering of my worldview would be if uh, somebody would become violent and do horrible things, um, which I can't put in line with what my worldview is. So my worldview, I still think you shouldn't do any harm to anybody, so that what the the, the human dignity and, and basic law and these things that thought we thought were a given fact, for me, that is still as true as it always was. That's why I'm here, and I think that applies to all of us here and, and many, many other people. Uh, there, nothing changed in that. Uh, so we are not in a in a world where this does not exist anymore. It's become more clear what the real values and the things are that keep things together inside, and that we see that there is illusionist elements in this, or were okay, true, but it's not really. I, that I see other people doing something bad, but that doesn't mean it doesn't mean it applies for me. But I fully agree with him there. There can't be any modifiability. Well, if we talk about this story of the First World War, where people where soldiers stand against the enemy and are happy to shoot everybody enemy down, and suddenly it's Christmas and they celebrate Christmas together, what happened? Well, that's a very difficult. Well, they do something some that you wouldn't do normally. They kill other human beings because somebody told them kill them, kill them now, now as well, kill, kill. That's what they do. You wouldn't do that, would you? So how is it that people do these things? But what Viviana just said. You said that you'd be. Um, appalled at yourself if you did certain things, if you suddenly turned violent, etc. That would destroy your worldview, but you could really uh, go back to psychology. Uh, it's a bit wider, uh, really, than that. Um, there are differences. Just to be concrete here, if you sit on the beach in Greece in the evening, and it's a, a starry night, um, Mr. Vodak still exists in existence, and you see an, an amazing starry sky. Any normal feeling uh, person 
has some associations and, and, and is touched by it, what do they see there? That's one thing. That's a very elementary experience. Now, um, the reason kicks in uh, where you read a lot, where you heard a lot about the uh, uh, galaxies and about uh, astrology, etc., astronomy. And um, it's I've seen this uh, very uh, clearly. Um, when people ask each other, uh, what's, uh, how do you feel about this? Well, that's clear, isn't it? And I have a different view, um, I, if I may say so, here without um, embarrassing myself. I see liveliness there. I see live beings in these stars. To me, this is all live. If I, they, it looks at me. If I look there, it, it looks back at me. Now you might say Kirchhoff is um, uh, going mad here. Well, not necessarily. There is some looking back as well. There is a, there's an app that you can uh, look at the stars. And if you look down below the horizon, that tells you what stars you see. That uh, sounds like you're on a flying object with a glass floor. So you'd think you are on, on, on Earth. And all of a sudden, behind what you say, there is stars as well. Exactly, exactly. And I feel that if I look into the starry sky, I see a live reality, live stars. Everything is inhabited. Maybe if it's if it's not the way we would see it as beings, it may be of a completely different structure. How did, you, how did we get to the idea that everything is dead, dead matter around it? That's pure fiction, not based on anything, is it? Well, this uh, developed over time, of course. In the 18th century, that wasn't the case yet. May I uh, give you some um, uh, science history here? In the 18th century, it was consensus among um, all the intellectuals that all these stars are inhabitants. Voltaire uh, spoke widely about uh, the forms of life on Sirius and that they're much more intelligent than us, etc., etc. That was consensus among intellectuals, and that only dissipated very gradually so there was a um, consensus that was disrupted there so that's about truth and reality then so it depends on how you define uh, define it whether it's live or not well then in the uh, 19th century additional ideas were added uh, um, by the way uh, now we're speaking about uh, the history of science. Um, and he was looking for um, gravity as a metaphysical uh, force. He was her hermetic, um, so an esoteric um, trends of the uh, that arose in the second or third uh, century um, so we always have to see that's not of Newton and that was always there and there was still this idea of liveliness even though the um, direction had already been shifted to, uh, in the other way um, it didn't 
disappear overnight, but it has disappeared uh, largely by today, unless you have something uh, that young people have, the science fiction world. Which is purely artificial, isn't it? And they see these strange beings everywhere. Yeah, they, they were successfully created for them, and I do see a context there also with these uh, stupid computer games. So that's where you send them over and say, okay, you won't get into anybody's way. Uh, don't get up our nerves, and if we tell you what to do, uh, you do, that's what you learn in the games. No, I mean, really, um, look, if I look back, this is not a fantasy, it's a reality. And to me, that is live, and I feel a connection there. I feel that I am a, a cosmic being, uh, even if Mr. Vodak says, well, Kirchhoff feels that. That's no contradiction, is it? Well, thank you, yeah. Anyway, you can feel uh, live, and, and you feel connected, and then natural science has a different character, physics has a different character. I can interpret uh, uh, phenomena differently. We have uh, fields and spatial fields that that have a different meaning than all of a sudden. It's very interesting. I can only point to my own uh, work. Um, you can take a look at them, the videos that are made. You don't have to, but you may. And a different, I have a new book uh, right here. Cosmos, Oval Media. Uh, um, Oval Media will be published pretty soon. But that um, keeps me busy. I've uh, said and written a lot about it. And uh, that's my view of science. And if we um, exclude all of that, then you wind up with this madness, this complete madness that we're familiar with. So it's a holistic ap approach, really, yeah, isn't it? With all this madness that we we're familiar with. And it goes for medicine as well. Well, with that holisticness, it is something that many people say, I want to think holistically and so on. That's a bit too much, maybe. We can't do that. Well, Mr. Morak, I try to avoid that word because it is a bit one-off. Um, holistic. Holistic is the word. So we know what we mean by saying, but it's a kind of a fashion term. It's a bit of a buzzword. And well, it's always um, simplifying. And um, we've had uh, too uh, limited um, perception. We can't understand everything that's there. Yeah, but Mr. Vorder, I think we can compute more than, well, as uh, you seem to be indicating, we can do a lot. Human beings in their basic constitution are high beings. Um, we've said, uh, as I said, the earthlings are a bit neurotic, maybe, or not quite awakened. That's what we could say. Still, I do believe that behind this, uh, human beings are a... Uh, uh, high, high, high beings. They have the ability for truth and get to approach truth and reality. And if they manage, then, uh, then well, they. Uh, so I have this image of this person who sits still and looking for truth. <coughs> well, shamans say that you should uh, bow to the uh, immortal soul of the others. And, and I think that's what uh, this is all about. It's also the dignity that uh, embodies us. And um, this is, is the gift that we're uh, on this earth, in this uh, body. 
And whether we are particularly beautiful or not, it doesn't really matter. We're here as we are, and I think it's a great thing. Well, that's a very humble uh, situation, and I think humble and dignity are the same thing. I, I, I want to. I don't want to use that word for myself so much. Uh, many people who talk about their uh, humbleness uh, sounds it's sounds like a, a bit like yeah. uh, monstrance. Uh, so, okay, um, no uh, no megalomania, but um, it has something great to being human being, and I think what was possible and what was done besides all the horrible things that we all know of, uh, we just have to look back in the past few years. It's gruesome. Uh, you can get sick of it if you think about it. So it you're shattered. It can't be true. How can human beings do this and believe in every madness, turning a murderer? That's that's something that's horrible. A brutal murder. If I only consider how people were left to their own devices, um, left alone to die. If you do that, you deserve the supreme penalty um, because um, my wife calls it cosmic balance. I, I do believe that it exists. And now we have uh, the time of reckoning. It's been overdue for centuries. Well, I do believe uh, also what you what you're saying there is that Corona crisis is a um, narrowing down, uh, which can could lead to a hinge point. I don't want to say that I know this, but it's possible. It could be also in the sense of system theory. This could be the hinge point, and. Uh, also, since early 2020, when I uh, saw your first video, I thought, well, this is right. That's right what he says, and that's what we have to do and go. So thank you very much for that, that you did this. And uh, I read George Gunman and so on as well, and uh, looked at my own background. I was very suspicious. I had a fundamental suspicion against uh, science and that made me uh, think very quickly this this can't be true but that now my thesis would be there's a radical pinpointing of the development and these um, would allow uh, processes of becoming conscious um, this is something that we can't imagine what that's going to be looked like and that could be a development impulse and uh, a point where we wake up, I, I awaken, an awakening call, maybe. I believe that. I think that's uh, a development that cannot be prevented. Well, much of the things that we have known and so far have uh, shown to be wrong, proven to be wrong. Our trustful living together in, in Germany has uh, been the carpet has been pulled on our feet. Um, I have not, never discovered so many lies in my life before at once as now. And of course, now we have to look for new ground and find people that we can trust and uh, that we have to restart communicating and communicating in a way that this can't happen again, that we can put our trust in, our, in each other rightfully. And uh, we did so, but it wasn't transparent. They did something in between. We were trustful and we had them do what they wanted to.
Mr. Wodak, I never trusted. Uh, since my 19th, uh, since I was 19, I never me, did. Me neither, really. So and I had I had so much awakenness since since I was 1920, and uh, uh, for all the time, I did see what didn't work and what can't work, and I had a deep mistrust against any authority in a sense also against the, the political authorities for a long 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 time before corona and i had a deep mistrust and in that sense i didn't uh, drop into that trap uh, i may have to, uh, got may have gone into other traps in my life i can't never exclude this but um at this point I mentioned it quite early, uh, I noticed it quite early, and so maybe we have a once-in-a-universe opportunity here, and uh, that something breaks up, and then uh, I could call it pathetically, then the celestial opening, or the, the sky will open, the heaven will open, and uh, the uh, tribunal can come together and manifest and that's going to happen yes it's a bit of a cosmic justice um, well maybe it's a cause we need a cosmic jail for that uh, for everybody then well if, uh, we have to uh, put them in a jail if uh, things don't uh, solve themselves in different we, ways we, we should definitely meet uh, face to face I think it's very important. Um, this is where things really go on. Unfortunately, now we have to listen to uh, Professor Berkov, who will have uh, sad news for us because the evaluation uh, committee didn't get to any result, as I had expected, because there apparently was no data. Well. I just wanted to mention this book is not only nice, um, it has lots of nice thoughts over media edited, uh, who do the te technical production here. They have a web shop, there's other books as well, and always I always like to cut the greedy middleman. You can buy it directly from the source. So let's see what Mr. Beckholz has to tell us. I guess you can hear and see me. Okay, greetings to everybody. It's actually not quite as bad as Rainer just said. There is light and dark, and I hope I can show that there's a lot of light as well. But what I have to say um, before I get started is that those who organized uh, the um, project um, who um, um, normally accompany the um, the study, um, they made the infrastructure available and the staff were incredibly dedicated. And I would like to thank the staff and uh, the head of this uh, work group, Ms. Kremza. Another positive uh, note is that the committee had a very uh, positive um, way of talking to each other. It's the opposite of uh, the commonplace talk shows. So they allowed everybody to have their say and people were treated with respect. Otherwise, I won't say anything about what happened there. 
Um, we agreed that uh, we can speak about contents, of question of contents, but not who said what when. So, and I, I'll stick to that. Uh, first of all, we um, ended in time. That was difficult enough. If you've ever had to write a, a doctor's thesis or a master's thesis or whatever, you will know that uh, things get hectic towards the end, and it was no different now. But it was important, so that is the overview of contents. You can download it from the Federal Ministry of Health, this executive summary. It's seven or eight pages. Then you know more or less what the, what it's all about, and I'll uh, skip it. So uh, there was something about the uh, basics of evaluation, then about the data, and in both cases, and also in the uh, risk communication, there are um, significant problems or failures um, of pandemic management are mentioned. And I'm uh, quite happy with these chapters and can actually sign most of it, uh, not every detail, but of course it's a document of consensus. I have problems with the chapter dealing with the uh, measures, but that's the way it is. If you have 17 people um, who get together having different viewpoints, and if you want to have a consensus document, then at the end of the day, you have to swallow a toad or two. And then legal aspects, and I think that's not a bad chapter either. So now let's see what I... Um, how I want to go through this. Uh, first of all, I have to share my screen with you. What's the right thing to do now? Seems to work. You can see the um, table of contents here. Um, We'll see it on the screen in a minute. We can see it on the preview screen. Here it is. Now, okay. So, well, I framed the important uh, sections in text boxes so that while I talk about them, I can show them. Uh, the first one is a bit uh, down. It's 160 pages worth of a document. Uh, highlight in yellow. Uh, instead, politicians need to um, prepare sufficient evaluation. This ensures that uh, this starts with the insight that political action uh, can only have a certain uh, impact. Uh, so that's the first thing. So, um, the next thing is that you have to show that you have systematic data collection. Um, in this uh, context, uh, one of the most important uh, fundamentals of quality management, if not the uh, most important one of them all, is to close the loop, uh, the closed loop. So I plan something, I implement it, then I look, does it work, and then I adjust things. And if I don't measure appropriately, then I can't adjust. And after, uh, and it took at least a year and a half in my eyes, uh, that's a, a big failure. So 
So let's jump to the next uh, very clear criticism. Data uh, could have been uh, collected in a much more planned way and wasn't done. I have a question. Uh, did you discuss why the ICWIC wasn't involved, which is the institute that does these things? So the efficiency of uh, measures, uh, benefit and uh, risk in terms of medical measures. And I'm the representatives of the patients there. And I asked that question. It's very limited. And the, Mr. Windel, the uh, director, uh, complained about not being involved when it was about the measures to be taken and assessed what, whether they're sensible or not. I can understand this criticism. <clears throat> All of this was handled in work groups. The work groups that I was involved in, um, well, with those work groups, I can't remember this being ever mentioned, but I won't preclude it. Well, it's very abstract so far. Is there anything concrete where you say this is where things went wrong? Doesn't be without words, but something that a, a normal citizen can understand, not just an abstract theorist could uh, discuss this? Well, let me say, I find that is quite concrete if we say you didn't collect the, uh, the appropriate data that you need for quality control. Uh, maybe I wasn't clear enough. If I uh, impose such measures and common sense would command that I have to check once in a while, did it work? If I drive a car, that's a drastic uh, example. Uh, even if I go down the motorway, um, a straight lane, I don't close my eyes. I have to keep adjusting, otherwise I will veer off uh, even a straight lane before well, long. I can't see that. Could you point out the sentence with that criticism? Well, I'll go back. Well, it's interesting. At the beginning of the crisis, there was uh, papers and that uh, blind flight, really, uh, of statistics at the time. Uh, maybe you remember that. So, necessary um, preconditions. Um, Action must be well, taken in order to allow for collection of data. Abstract. It should say this didn't happen here, but it doesn't. This is something that you have to think of yourself, uh, up yourself. Um, I see this as a hollow phrase. <laughs> well, I do think that they had their objectives and they did verify whether they uh, reached their objectives, but there weren't health objectives that we're looking for here. Now, they had other objectives. If you look at the stock prices and the profit margins that some achieved, they did achieve their objectives. I think that they did have certain objectives and that there were people who made sure that they were achieved. Maybe they're not as successful anymore, but we do believe that they um, uh, want the best for our health. And that's, that's the reason why they do this. And I have so given up on that a long time ago. Then we don't need to see it. Maybe we can have a couple of sentences where, where we see this. What, uh, it's a very lame wording, shall we say. Yes, of course. Uh, but from my background, I think uh, in the context of a company, this would be tough stuff. Uh, that would be a very tough uh, challenge. And uh, 
Then also we take, this looks at quality management. This is a quality management model of a medical person, which reflects the 2000, uh, 9001 process quality, result quality, and uh, that has, it's just rephrased here with different words, looking at uh, what has to happen, what has to coincide to look at all the pandemic management to work. Now, coming to the next box, of course, this is all very diplomatically put. Here it says the central requirement, or indirectly, it says I look at Great Britain, although the data situation in, uh, in comparison to Germany is much better, so in Germany, the, the situation with data is very poor. Still in Great Britain, there's great potential for improvement. That's my personal perception as well. If I look at the UK health data, um, comparing that with what our CRI tells us, that's a different league altogether. Let me go to the next box. Okay, <clears throat> then this is about the communication. This is one goal, uh, we uh, to have a informed decision in the trust of, and the trust of the public institution should be maintained. There was a survey, which is not quoted here, um, saying that the majority has no trust in public institutions anymore. That is done um, in the context with communication. A bit more interesting. This is about fear, which is something that we had discussed in the committee a couple of times. So the risk perception of the recipients may be distorted and strongly restricted if they are put under stress and fear. So indirectly, that says that uh, this causing of fear Tell me one thing. Do you say everything indirectly? Why can't you make clear statements? This sort of judgment would be shredded and uh, disposed of, even though not anymore today. That's the normal way uh, of uh, judgment rulings today. Why can't they make clear statements anymore? Why does it have to be such that everybody can interpret what they want um, uh, into it? You can also read it as abstractly, that's the way we want to have it. but. Um, in practice, that's what it, what happened. But you can say it differently as well. Um, well, abstractly, that's what we need. That it didn't uh, work that way. It doesn't say uh, this. Yes, that's right. I completely agree with you. And controversial discussions, opinions are part of the democratic debate. Deviating views must be allowed, therefore, and the society should have a constructive approach to this. Although here we have to say not only society, but government as well, and the management, so to say. Well, that seems to shine a little light. There's more, there's more, uh, getting more clear. And So, proposed solutions and approaches and diverting 
positions were put away with quickly and everybody who uh, came with a deviating view was uh, put off the discourse without uh, so we have especially Wolfgang with us whom this applies to and then in the end it says a this <clears throat> if uh, this does it will help to contribute to a constructive respectful and democratic uh, debate which is inevitable in uh, or in inevitable in a democratic system that is okay-ish well i think that we can't conclude anything because it's so softened down but i agree if you have a trained eye you can see a hint of a positive note if you look closely enough and long enough i understand your criticism but i still believe that that um, you know, what i said earlier is true okay yes quite clear and the uh, addressing uh, scientific risks that there's a risk in the communication the uncertainty should be communicated uh, as well and not only as the following follow the science as the mantra and the following controversies are integral part of a democratic debate and they should be not ignored by the stakeholders but addressed so that goes in the same direction uh, <clears throat> can you just um, scroll up a bit again it says uh, counteract disinformation but that that's us really yes that's us that's quite right and to disprove it so um, what do you mean um, these uh, studies can't be disproved uh, the studies that uh, show that the masks are uh, no good and then it says uh, a targeted communication uh, that's really propaganda that uh, you're actually so, recommending the best thing to do with this is take it as loop paper well, I well put it this way no you can't of course that's not your point of view no you always so, have to see so um, um, it should be implemented by state institutions representatives of science and journalism ie the, the purchased uh, uh, journalists uh, report information uh, that the uh, well, assumption of disinformation it's never been this uh, the question is has there been the term disinformation in scientific discourse it also includes a lot of other things I only uh, picked the one things where uh, you can see something positive but uh, there are many things that I would obviously uh, I would have written it differently if I had to wrote it alone uh, but if you're in a, on a body like that you have to see how you can find consensus and you have to really swallow a few toads now let's move on now this is really a tough one i think the efficacy of the vaccination as a measure uh, can it be dealt with for reasons of complexity this also includes the uh, vaccination mandate for the health services i can't agree on that at all 
or with that, um, there is enough data available, I'd say. We shouldn't uh, talk about what uh, happened, but you can um, expect that I did insert a few things. Well, the, the complexity is a nice way to describe it. It touched a lot, if you question it, uh, that lots of things would break down if you went into that. So in that sense, it's very complex. Yes, politically, things would break down. It's really complex if you address that topic, what would happen? So, in that side, well, in that sense, that sense is quite right, I assume. Yes, but uh, uh, if we go further down of that uh, um, vaccination commission, uh, you shouldn't touch on what they say. Well, that was not my input, uh, let me put it that way. Well, I would say that is a kind of greenwashing uh, with a little light, very abstract um, way of not looking at the concrete case uh, with the claim here, but all together, I could say the previewable uh, result is quite clear here. And then I just uh, skipped the criticism and the assessment of the measures, but that's where my biggest, biggest dissent is. And uh, so that doesn't go beyond uh, masks. Uh, you can't really say precisely what happened. <clears throat> uh, what I do think is there is a simple physical um, consideration which I'd like to share. Let's assume a mask had the opportunity to hold back. <clears throat> what would happen? That means I exhale 100 viruses in my aerosols. The mask lets 50 pass and 50 stay in the mask and then I uh, breathe in again and out again and then I have 150 that I breathe out and 75 will pass the mask. So there is a kind of uh, accumulation inside the mask until the double amount and then um, we get out what we got in because nothing is um, <clears throat> trapped. If I'm uh, infectious, then I uh, just uh, collect viruses inside the mask um, which is uh, then completely balances off the mask. The mask doesn't kill it off or anything. It keeps it. So there is a reservoir of uh, agents inside the mask um, that is fed that are fed by every breath you exhale. And I tell people, if I put a uh, little stones into a stream in a river stream and uh, I can stop the water for a certain level and um, then it'll keep that level. And that's the same thing that we have, have here. 
which is kind of two plus two is four. I don't need to do any um, examinations here that this can't be true. And uh, I talked to a, a flight instructor um, a little while ago, and he said, oh, it's all nice, but for example, in an aircraft, the masks are never tight. Most of the air is breathed out to the sides, exactly where the next passenger is in uh, the aircraft or in the air, uh, in school, instead of blowing it up to the uh, up above uh, for the HIPAA filters to filter it, which are installed in aircraft, which are actually able to filter uh, viruses or in uh, classrooms which are high enough. So following this elementary consideration, masks are simply useless. And there is uh, any number of studies that show that they don't only help, not help, but they are harmful as well. Well, if you need uh, oxygen to uh, breathe and you cut it down by putting a mask in front of your face, that you need a study for that is a um, uh, secret to me. This is a nice uh, sentence. The Americans have proceeded uh, 20 steps of four um, because they don't just go abstract talk, uh, saying that this administrative state, which is the representation or replacement of the legislators of the legislator by administrations. This is, Foucher is the uh, replacement president. They found that this is illegal, that this is unconstitutional, and other than here, it would be expected that this has actually been taken serious when the CDC was certified on the 18th of April that the CDC and the administration has no means to tell the people to wear masks and planes. And um, they implemented it because they were afraid that if they um, withstand the will of the ridiculative, which is the will of the people as well, then that would have ended badly for some people. So this is why they did it. And um, other than all the PCR tests that have been uh, rulings, which have been completely ignored here, um, uh, in Portugal, worse even in Weimar, where we had the totalitarian state coming back, and uh, Austria and Turkey, and there are differences. And we see who is a step further ahead. Uh, it's not us. Well, in Bosnia-Herzegovina, there was a decision made. Um, where again now? That, that's the English translation. So it was just uh, cons confirmed that this is all unconstitutional. You can't do it that way. And they took it back, and the parliament is there in this. So politics, that's Eastern Europe, really, with the parliament saying, we do not agree. So the Eastern European countries are uh, leaving the EU which is a good way, and uh, they take the rules seriously, which um, what they should do and what was decided in the European Council. And uh, the rest of Western Europe simply ignores this. Well, talking about the legal side, I've stopped the screen sharing, but I read it out. The uh, legal conclusion um, says that the change of major decisions to a legally not only um, guided but uh, um, instructed executive is uh, by the legal scholarship 
sorry, uh, um, seen as uh, unconstitutional in major court, in major parts. So that's the abolition of the separation of powers, right? Yes, uh, this group of uh, the chancellor and and the group of governors. Um, that's what it refers to. So if I um, uh, draw an overall conclusion, my view uh, of things is that there is a lot of criticism here, but unfortunately, the weakest chapter in my uh, book is the measures, and I have to admit that obviously my arguments weren't sufficiently um, convincing. Maybe um, the wording could have been clearer here or there as well. That's certainly true. But Werner, maybe one has to say that within the system, nothing uh, is possible anymore. We have to build our own system. The 20 or 30 percent who still think straight have to build up our own system. We can see that this is collapsing. This system is broken excessively. Nothing goes anymore. Such um, uh, soft wording. Uh, against the background of the um, undeniable consequences of the vaccinations, um, that's really no good, is it? Well, remember that nine of the uh, members were dispatched, were, were uh, appointed by Parliament, the other uh, by the government, the Ministry of Health. And um, shall we say that there are different uh, points of view? Uh, there is obvious. But that's the way it is. Well, Werner, I don't think uh, we can um, expect that the question doesn't arise whether you made a good point or whether you presented it well enough. As you said, a, a certain result, just like we heard from Mr. Kirchhoff here, a certain worldview or a certain outcome had been expected, and then they just uh, write what they want. It's really um, unbelievable um, if uh, you consider that we know from this false alarm paper by uh, Mr. Kuhn um, what is wrong and what indications were already at the time, at this early stage, that we're not dealing with a a dangerous pandemic and that we had to expect massive collateral damage, they could have fallen back to this paper and then verify in reality or apparent reality what actually happened, even on the basis of the figures um, that um, this basis isn't a, a good one and it's also manipulated. It still transpires that there is no problem. Uh, that there is no um, problem of a uh, threat, a risk to um, the population. But now there are um, uh, risks uh, from the vaccination, and that should have been uh, considered. Well, the fact that the vaccination wasn't considered, I believe, was not uh, factually justified. I, I try not to be dramatic here. Uh, it's not like None of my arguments were incre uh, included. One of the graphs is even um, from me. Um, it's been artistically um, beefed up, but 
let me say my personal view is that with the exception of uh, the measures chapter, I'm not unhappy with um, the statements in the diplomatic lingo, that's true, but concerning the measures, uh, i.e. Uh, regarding the masks, the lockdowns, I told you, uh, North and South Dakota, uh, it's obvious that uh, lockdowns didn't um, have any benefit and all this testing, I said it again and again in the health uh, committee with this ill-conceived uh, incidence, uh, which, um, or this uh, KPI of the incidence, which is mathematically, uh, medically nonsense. Okay, uh, Werner, I'm not accusing you. I know that you did the best you could. I know that you convinced us with what you told us in the various hearings we've had with you. And I uh, see it like Viviana. Um, there was a wall uh, erected from the get-go and nobody was allowed to uh, cross it because otherwise the entire complex system would have collapsed. And so they wasted time while people were dying to uh, say quite uh, say how it is. Okay, so let's see how it goes on. Okay, thank you, Vanna. See you next time. Right, so now we we have the next uh, guest. That's Dr. Hedley Rees. Hedley? I can indeed. Can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. I'm sorry to keep you waiting, but I think uh, if you have uh, been able to listen to the translation of what uh, Professor Burkholz says, um, I, I found it discouraging. I knew that he did his best in evaluating whether or not the measures uh, were of any help in fighting the pandemic. Well, but obviously uh, this was a, um, the outcome was preconceived and there wasn't much he could have done about it. Um, at any rate, let's turn to you now. You're a managing director of PharmaFlow, author and advocate for more modernization of the pharmaceutical industry. You held senior positions at Bayer UK, British Biotech, Renalis and others. You're the author of Taming the Big Pharma Monster by Speaking Truth to Power. I find that particularly interesting. You're going to talk about uh, the fact that there's evidence that the drugs were rushed to the market, taking significant shortcuts to make money rather than offering the safest and most effective product possible, and how MHRA, EMA, did not follow its own rules and guidelines described in its orange guide. They did not meet their very own terms for conditional approval of the injections and how minus 70 degrees centigrade ultra frozen injections were a gross contravention of GMP as good medical practice as they were not fully finished as unit doses on leaving the factory and they had to circumvent pharmaceutical wholesalers licensed to comply with GDP because they were not equipped to handle those temperatures. I find that very interesting. Yeah, well, um, I keep saying this, but people don't seem to understand that medicines, vaccines are manufactured. And um, for some reason, I go back to penicillin, I won't go into it, but um, the myth is that penicillin was found by accident. But uh, and there's a well-known professor, well, Robert Grimes, again, sorry, in the US, who explained that actually penicillin was a collaborative effort between governments, um, US Department of Agriculture, scientists, engineers, 
manufacturing experts to bring penicillin to market. But so when someone says, I've brought a drug to market in nine months, if they said, I've, de I've developed and manufactured the Boeing Dreamliner in nine months, people would say, how did you get all the components together or that complex or those lead times or the procurement, the whole thing? You'd be laughed out of uh, out, out of the um, the room. But for some reason, uh, people think that drugs can be uh, you know fast tracked in the in the way they have been. So this 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 myth that you can um, genetically um, you can create genetic code and every year produce a new vaccine is is complete nonsense. The drug development process has been in place, we know, for decades, you know, 30, for, uh, and they've been developed over periods where things have gone wrong and, and regulations have been tightened. And <clears throat> ultimately, we have the three phases. We have the preclinical phase, which we know typically, and this, the US Government Accountability Office officially um, uh, uh, issued a report in 2006, basically said preclinical for any drug is three years. Um, uh, the, the, the clinical time scale is, is seven years, and the time for the regulator to review the, um, the, the, um, the, the dossier is about one and a half years. So if I can just talk you through that, all the way through that, the supply chain is being put in place. So for any new molecular entity, any new drug, First thing is you have to prove that you make a small quantity, maybe 10 kilos or 10 liters in, in the case of, of a, a liquid, and you test that in animals to prove that what you've made is safe. Now, as you go to a larger scale, if you move into phase two studies, more patients, you make a bigger quantity, you might make 50 kilos. You have to test that again, because every time you scale up, you can create what's known as a polymorph, Polymorph is a change in structure. You, you know, I'm not a scientist actually, I'm an engineer, but you know, um, it's like it's like when you make a cake. You know, you can make a small cake and it tastes lovely. You, you scale it up five times or ten times, and you know, you wouldn't give it to your, to, to your worst enemy. So, um, so, uh, so as you go through the clinical trials, you have to keep testing the product, and then of course you get an approval and you validate, you have to validate the batches and the whole thing. So the notion that you can do all these activities in parallel, phase one, phase two, phase three, is a complete nonsense because you potentially go into create toxic uh, products as, as you scale up. Um, so uh, I've been in this uh, industry for 40 years altogether. Um, I started with Bayer in, um, in 1980 and then the industry was was vertically integrated. So at the Bayer, we made everything on the one site. We brought raw materials in the in, in the in the goods inwards. We blend the materials. We uh, compress the tablets. We pack them into foil, and we ship them all across the UK, um, direct to hospitals and pharmacies. If it was going overseas, we shipped to other Bayer entities. And they did the same thing. So there's a very close connection with, with patients. And that integration meant the quality systems, you had one quality system that controlled the whole of manufacture. Over the last 40 years, 
the industry has outsourced everything, development, manufacture, clinical research. So companies like Pfizer, AstraZeneca, um, they don't make any of these products themselves. Um, if we take Moderna, Lonza in Switzerland, uh, this is public domain because um, uh, there's been press releases. Lonza making the um, drug substance for, um, <clears throat> for Moderna. Lonza is the biggest contract development manufacturing, uh, development and manufacturing organization in the world. Um, and these companies do most of the manufacture. Um, if we look at AstraZeneca, it was a company called Oxford Biomedica, who I know well, I've consulted to, they're based in Oxford. They produce the, the gene therapy for Novartis's Kimria. Kimria is a drug for uh, blood cancers, what they call CAR-T cancers. Um, and uh, they produce the viral vector uh, for uh, Kimria, and they also produce the adenovirus vector for AstraZeneca. So when AstraZeneca and Oxford University say, we developed these drugs, they didn't. You know, Oxford University will have created some code, genetic code, given it to Oxford Biomedica. They would have developed it, done the scale up, done all the work, got it up to full scale manufacture. And if you look at the Oxford Biomedica website, you will see press releases where they are uh, announcing that they are, you know, taking on more business from AstraZeneca. So, and it's the same with, um, with Moderna. With Pfizer, uh, we've got inside information that shows that there's about four different companies making the drug substance. Um, Bayer in, in Belgium, uh, two in, in, in the US, Andover and somewhere else. And there's a, there's a, a contract development manufacturer in Germany making it. And I'm convinced Lonza is the only company in the world who can make these mRNA vaccines because Lonza has been in the business for 20 plus years. They've been making biologics a long, long time. They are very good at it. Pfizer, the company, they, some of these companies they bought, they haven't been doing this very long. I'm very skeptical that they could actually do the development themselves without Lonza helping out. And given the, the closeness between Pfizer and Moderna, I would say I haven't got the evidence. Um, but I certainly know many people who could provide the evidence if they were um, allowed to. <clears throat> so th this is the big issue. So you've got an outsourced supply chain. In theory, th by the regulations, the marketing authorization holders are fully responsible for the supply chain from end to end. And if you look at the supply chain for a biologic, which they're the gene therapies, but they're also biologics made from living things, um, you have a starting material that commences the manufacture, and it's going to be a cell line, either human or animal cell line. That has to be validated. That takes months. Then the cell line goes to the upstream, upstream processing, where you create the bulk liquid, the bulk drug substance that is going to be the active ingredient. That then goes to downstream processing, the fill finish, um, you know, the, the, the purification of the, of the drug, the fill finish, fill into vials. Now, typically, those vials will be packed into individual cartons and they will be at plus two to plus eight degrees C. Um, that, that's typical. And this wholesalers can handle plus two to plus eight. And actually, the AstraZeneca drug is plus two to plus eight. So that went through the normal wholesaler channels. 
with minus 70 or minus 20, the wholesalers have no ability to handle that. You know, though there's never been a drug at that temperature before. And the actual vaccination centers had to do the finishing of the manufacture. You know, a vaccination center received 190, I'll take the Pfizer vaccine, received 195 vials in a cardboard tray, frozen down to minus 70. Now, when you thaw, you have to do um, a free thaw studies to prove, under controlled conditions, to prove that those conditions will deliver, when it's thawed, will deliver a drug that's still safe and effective. So, um, so when you do that in manufacturing, you've got standard operation, uh, uh, um, standard operating procedures, and people know exactly what they have to do. They train, they have to sign that they've been trained and they understand the standard operating procedure. The people in the vaccination centers were having to find the instructions on the internet, on the MHRA website or on the you know, CDC or the FDA website. And they were gonna to have to work out how they took those 195 vials that frozen down to 170 uh, to minus 70 degrees, put them in the refrigerator that wouldn't have been validated. And you know, a household refrigerator is not going to keep plus two to plus eight unless it's been properly validated. Can and I, that, can I ask you something? Yeah. Do, do you think it was really necessary to cool this down like to this degree? I mean, was this like a, uh, whatever, like a, a pseudo temperature? Because it also meant that the all these uh, large vaccination centers had to be created, uh, you know, so not the, the, the usual, the normal doctor just couldn't have, um, you know, such a such a high power fridge in his, in his, uh, doctor's office. Um, I mean, can there be any reason why this was so needed to be so cool? And then a few months later, it was not necessary anymore. I mean, is this like expl explicable? Or was this only to circumvent family doctors so that they could drive everyone into those uh, vaccination centers? No. For, to get shelf life, to get the adequate shelf life, if it's a fairly stable product, then you can, you know, keep it at plus two to eight or even room temperature. But with these drugs, they're so unstable that unless you freeze them down to minus 70, they won't last long enough to get them into, into patients. And even the stability studies, there's a set of guidelines, the International Conference for Harmonization of Technical Requirements of Pharmaceuticals, they lay down guidance on stability testing. And you have to, you have to provide real-time stability, six months, nine months, 12 months, to, to justify the shelf life none of that happened at all it couldn't have happened because the time scale wasn't there so i just just go back to that so you had untrained people not just throwing out these uh vials but then there were five doses in the vial so and the they the, the these untrained people had to uh, procure saline diluent and then they had to inject saline diluent metaconicillin diluent into the vial and then they had to manipulate it. They had to turn it over 10 times to mix it. And then they had to, you know, dose the patient, take five doses out. So, you know, that is, you know, never before have non-unit doses gone to patients, uh, gone to be administered in patients. We've had untrained, some of this has been done in car parks. You know, there's a lady, I, I've got a sub stack inside pharma, there's a lady on there, she said, 
she was um, uh, she would buy a local Target supermarket, and she saw a sign saying "Beware Biohazard," and suddenly the fire service turned up with you know what with the vaccines, and they proceeded to do the usual stuff, you know, thaw them, and and people came in and they were vaccinating patients themselves. Now that's a second-hand account, but. Um, we know that people were being sort of brought in to um, to inject people, no training, no understanding what they what they were doing. Um, it's it's horrendous. But I go back to good distribution practice. There's a definition of manufacture, and the the thawing is part of manufacture. Yeah. You know, and it needs to be quality testing. After that, never do put drugs into people without the final quality tests check so so but the other contravention uh major contravention is that the Pfizer vaccine um had in the in the UK and Europe it's not called a, an emergency use authorization it's called a condition on marketing authorization and there were conditions issued by MHRA that had to be met by Pfizer and one of the conditions was that they had to follow all the regulations that a formal marketing authorization holder would have to, someone who had a full marketing authorization. So that includes good manufacturing practice and good distribution practice. That were, those are the conditions under which these, uh, the, these uh, vaccines were, were, were conditionally approved. Well, it's so, uh, there's so many uh, contraventions of GMP and GDP you know, when, when you ship an item under cold chain, you have to put it in a container with ins insulated container, what they call VIPs. You put with either full of dry ice. Um, you have to put in a, te a temperature logger in there, what they call data loggers, temptails, different names for them. And it has to monitor real time the temperature of that container the whole way through the journey. And some of these journeys could take up to five days as it goes through airports and, and the whole thing. And then when it gets to the destination, that data log has to be downloaded and a quality person has to look at the trace and confirm there'd be no excursions outside, well, minus 70, either you know, between minus 80 and minus 60, average minus 70, but there'd be no excursions outside of that. Otherwise, it's a ruined shipment. So, um, so there's, there's so many parties in the overall logistics of shipping from one place to another, the chances that good distribution, you know, those temperatures were properly met are very slim. In fact, there was, I know there was a situation with um, one of the contractors switched off the temp tail because they didn't want to, the, the data log because they didn't want to, you know, to have um, any liability for something further down the line. Um, so I, I could, you know, I can talk to you about these non-compliances till you're blue in the face and I'm blue in the face, but you know. What's, what's the result? What is, what happened as a result of this? Is this, does this mean that the so-called vaccine is totally ineffective or does it mean that it becomes more dangerous or do we not know? No, we know it either becomes ineffective, this is well documented, either becomes ineffective or it can become become harmful. It says that in the in the MHRA orange guides, there's a section there. I can I can send you the um the text that can Please, send you yes. the, 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 the section. Um it says 
if, uh, if, if uh, a product goes outside its temperature range, it could either be ineffective or, or harmful. Mm -hmm. it's, it, it clearly says that. And, you know, uh, what amazes me is so many people in the industry know this inside out and no one is saying anything. You know, they know that this is the this is bread and butter for them. And so if you called someone up in court and 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 an oath and said, you know, tell me about coaching, they would have to say, well, yes, you know, if it went out of uh, out the limits, then it could be it could have a very bad effect. Th th that's why I say you wouldn't have to have any purposeful harm in mind with this. There was so little control over the whole thing and so many non-compliances then people have to be harmed, aside from the fact that this is a novel, mRNA is a novel therapy. None of the, the this is the other thing, you have to inspect, physically inspect these sites that are making the vaccines. You know, if you've got a restaurant, you expect to get, yeah. you know, a regular visit from the health authorities to make sure that you aren't doing, you know, naughty things. None of this has happened. What should happen is that they should be given what they call MIAs, marketing and importation authorization. So they should have an inspection by the regulators. They go there, they inspect the plant, and then they write a report and they identify minor findings, major findings, and critical findings. And that report takes months, two months, goes back to the company, and they have to respond. Almost invariably, you have to take corrective actions. Um, and if there's anything critical, then you may not get the license at all, or at least you, you've, got, you've got a strong action plan to make sure that you do the various things to, to, to put it right. Uh, so yeah, you then respond to the regulator, which takes another couple, two, three, four months, and they look at your response, and if they're happy with it, they will give you the license for that product. So they will have had to inspect it, that product, being manufactured in that plant, and that has to go on their license. So they may have a manufacturing license, but they can't manufacture the product if it's not actually added to the license. So there's a list of products added, added to the license um, that every manufacturer has got that. So that could even that couldn't have happened in less than nine months, I, I, I would say. So, and there were no inspection for, you know, in, in the US, you work at a drug, you know, this is standard. You have to have pre-approval inspections before you get a license, an NDA or BLA. And I've been, you know, I've been through companies, through mock, mock PIAs, and everyone is frightened to death because you get two experienced inspectors go in for four or five days. They go through everything. Drug substance and drug product, those are the two critical areas. The drug product where it's filled into its primary container the vial and the drug substance, which, which is where, which is the active ingredient. So if anything goes wrong with that, it's catastrophic. Uh, catastrophic. So these pre-approval inspections, it's written into, uh, um, there's never been a product approved. It's always approved the packaging site, you know, the, the sites where it's a company they've been doing the packaging a long time, but you can't make any mistakes with the drug substance and the drug product. So you have to, they have to be inspected. I asked the question, okay, if COVID was so bad, what's stopping them going in now, FDA going in now, and inspecting those plants, the Pfizer plants, Lonza, um, Catlin Pharma Solutions, who do the fill finish. We know, we know them all. 
um, when the, the public don't know them all, it's been kept very quiet, but in the industry, it's, it's you know, widely known that um, this has all been going on. When I wrote Tame and the Big Farmer Monster, I explained exactly how outsourcing everything has brought this industry to its knees. The only thing Big Farmer has got is painted molecules and sales and marketing. The whole piece in between is in is in no man's land, is in with third parties. I call it find it, finally flog it. So that's another book that I wrote. So they find the molecule, painted it, then they hand it over to contractors to file it, get it approved. And um, we know only one in 10,000 molecules get to market. Only uh, one in, uh, only 200, sorry, sorry, out of 250, this is, you again, US Government Accountability Office figures, out of every 250 candidates that enter preclinical development, only five are in the clinic. So 45 fail. Now, millions of animals have been killed, you know, billions of dollars have been spent on all the testing. And so that's the level of attrition that we've got there. And out of the five that get into the clinic, only one gets approved. So you think the patient's dashed hope, a patient gets on to a phase three trial and um, they're all excited and it fails. You know, what, why do, how do trials fail in phase three when they've been through all that, that development? So, and you know, I explained that we've, we are, are, are pushing drugs into clinical development way before we know if the compounds got any future whatsoever. These days you've got technologies like organic chip where you can predict uh, the impact a compound is going to have on certain organs, heart, kidney, liver. Um, in universities, it's, you know, it's been well established, but there's no pull from the big pharma companies to really bring that on board because they're happy to stick, stick with their old, tried and tested. Let's test it, you know, let's, let's fling molecules at the table. Let's test it animals. Let's do what we've always done. And when one gets to market, we market the bones out of it, you know, and we know the sort of sales techniques. I, 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 there, there was a critical incident in 1981. In 1976, Smithland and French launched a drug called Tagamet. It was a drug for uh, uh, stomach ulcers. Good drug. It was a 12-year development program, and the head of uh, the program, Sir James Black, um, he had um, he was awarded so he was awarded Nobel Prize. Um, and five years later, Glaxo launched a, a competitive product called Zantac. Now. That within three, four years, Zantac was outselling Tagamet by three to one. And they did it because they noticed there were some minor side effects with um, Tagamet that they could target to doctors. And they convinced doctors that Zantac was a safer drug because the, 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 the side effects, the only marginal difference is the, the, the person in charge of the Zantac development uh, program, Sir David Jack, he said in his obituary, all we did was develop a cleaner process. We just, we looked at the, the, the Tagamet process and we made it a bit cleaner. So, this, so they, all the development work that had been done with Smith kind of French, that was ignored. So the whole industry then saw that and said, by golly, we, we can make 
This is where blockbusters start. We can make billions because all we need is a patent and sales and marketing. And the rest of it, you know, it, it, there's always one that gets through and it doesn't have to be that good, <laughs> you know, because we can. So that is where we are today. So and I've been saying this for the last 10 years to the industry. Um, and they, I, I've, been all over, I've been all over the Western world at conferences and they look at me sort of with, with sort of semi smiles in their faces thinking he's right, you know, but, you know, no one's going to listen to him. Um, that's why I've written, the, you know, the books. Uh, the first book I wrote, Supply Chain Management of the Drug Industry, was for Wiley. It's a 450-page book that goes through the industry, drug development, the principles of supply chain management, procurement, production planning, the whole thing. And Dr. Janet Woodcock then contributed um, a, a lovely piece to it. Um, Dr. Woodcock has been pushing industry modernization for for 25 years and obviously got nowhere because the industry have been about, you know, as interested as, well, I, I, I don't know what, but why would they be interested? Because investors want the returns, you know, if suddenly someone in pharma said, I'm, I'm not going to use this blockbuster um, uh, uh, strategy anymore, I'm going to move to one, I'm going to take more time, and, you know, they get, <laughs> you know, the CEO of that company would, would, get, um, would, would get fired. But there is a long-term need to refocus the industry onto healthcare professionals and not so much patient. You know, if you design the plane, you talk to the pilot, you don't talk to the passengers. And it's the same in medicines. If you design the medicine, you talk to the healthcare professionals, you don't talk to the patient, you know, because the healthcare professionals talk to the patients anyway. And I go back to, I call it taking medicine back to the future, but if you look, Fleming was a physician, Banting and those guys who invented insulin, they were physicians. Salk, Jonas Salk with a polio vaccine, he was, he, was a, he was medically qualified, I'm not sure if he'd be a physician, but he had a strong medical qualification. So James Black, who I've just mentioned here, was a physician. So David Jack was a physician. Up until 1981-82, drug development was headed up by physicians with the support of chemists, you know, scientists and engineers. You know, all this talk about science, it's, it's a joke because we're talking about applied science here. Mm -hmm. And most of the science you see is deep biology where all these molecules are going around. We don't know what's going to happen to a, you know, you put a drug in a patient's body, we don't know what's going to happen to that. You know, the only way you're going to know, and this is what happened with penicillin, they tested the drug in a, a couple of people who were badly injured, who were dying of, of an infection, and they started to get better. And it was only then that they had the evidence that penicillin was working, that the, 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 the manufacturing process was developed. So they knew that they had a drug that worked before they put the full manufacturing pro process in, in, in place. And it was always like that. I mean, Banting and the people with insulin, they injected themselves with, um, you know, with the ground up pancreas and, and the whole thing. It's all well documented. Salt tested some of this vaccine on, on himself and his family. I'm not, saying, not suggesting we do that now, but the technologies, the ex vivo technologies, you know, uh, in silico, computers, um, uh, particularly tissue, uh, testing in tissues. Now, a tissue can tell you an awful lot about how 
a compound is going to 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 to, to affect the body. So I'm I'm not going to sort of bore you bore you silly here, but I'm just saying this system is completely broken, and we need to go back to a much more healthcare focused, healthcare professional focused system like we used to have before, but with technology involved so we can really, I just gonna need consultation. You know, it's, it's, I think once this is, once this comes to a head and, and the people who've perpetrated this crime are brought to justice, there's gonna be a huge vacuum as to what happens next. You know, what happens in medicine is because the people who are doing it for us, they can't do it. The big farmer can't develop medicines anymore. So you have to look at the people. The skills are now in the contractor base. They've been outsourcing the contractor base. These contractors, they've got the skills, but they've got no skin in the game. They get paid no matter what. They get paid on a fee for service. And of course, they can charge almost what they like. So the cost of drugs are never going to go down. They're only ever going to go up. Um, I, I've written chapter and verse on this. So um and I was, it's glad to have the opportunity to speak to you here because um you know uh people inside the industry have never wanted to know on twitter now people there's more and more people are saying well yeah what what is going on here you know we can't trust a doctor we can't trust um you know politicians we can't trust anyone to give us proper um factual information that's why i started my substack because can I give some inside farmer Substack a plug because uh, I'm trying to get up and run. I've got about 1,200 um, subscribers at the moment, mainly free, which uh, which I don't uh, which I don't mind. But I, I share every day or every two days a new update on what's happening. Uh, you know, I've been sharing this the whole. You know, if I, I've interviewed Brooke Jackson. I've interviewed uh, Sasha Latipova of uh, how bad is my back fame. I've, I'm still working with Sasha on um, on the MHRA issues that we've got at the moment, uh, using the, the, the leaked emails and the information that she's got from her contact, because she used to work in the industry. Faiz used to be a client of her, and she, you know she's got a lot of contacts who can who, who can help us. So there's a small team of us working on this to. Um, you know, to really get to the bottom of it. I have a, I have a question. Um, Mike Eden told us that he that it was difficult to explain the variety of quality we found in the vast data. It was was by Particoper and and his friends. Uh, he could not explain it by just failures in manufacturing techniques. He said there must be something more. There must be some systematic, some other things behind because there were only few few vials that uh, really had side effects and others they didn't have any side effects and when the stuff which should be in if the rnr is in this vials there should be much more side effects than we observed so yeah. what do you think what is the, the newest interpretation of this data 5% of the batches caused 90% of the serious adverse reactions yeah, well, um, I think that was because these batches weren't made to GMP. They were made in R&D, Pfizer R&D, and some other companies they were working with. We know the initial batches were 1.5 liters. They were made with very small. The thing is, BioNTech is a tiny company. Yeah. They've got no capability to develop drugs at all. 
They just appointed the directors. In fact, I, I, I know the legal counsel. He contributed to my first book. And uh, when he moved there, I thought, oh, that's a strange move, because he was with Conan Berlin, he was with Morrison Foster. And, um, but he was very good at the legal side of supply chains. I, I worked with him with supply agreements. And it looks as if these supply agreements have just been, instead of going through the normal, you know, you cascade down the supply agreements from the company who's making the drug down to the various suppliers. Um, and that takes months, every, every step takes months. So um, suddenly it all happened in once. I think they just had one huge agreement, well, you know better than I, that included everyone in the supply chain, the contractors, the suppliers, the, the, the cell line suppliers, and just said, look, you know, we're gonna do this and we're gonna do it as quickly as we can. And, you know, that's what they've done. And, and to do it, uh, they have they have had to go through this, the, you know, make the initial very small quantities. The people making those don't understand GM, GMP is there because you've got the checks and balances and um, things like thawing and all those things. It's very important that it's done properly. So, and Sasha Latipova, um, she has told me that the first 33 batches were not, the Pfizer batches were not made to GMP because they were R&D batches. And I'd like to be able to look inside that. And the information I've got, it does look as if the initial small batches were small and um, could well have had issues with them. Well, so what, this, what this, this coincides, Headley, with the fact that we now know because of um, Brooke Jackson, uh, but also because of Karen Kingston, that um, Pfizer's agreement with the DOD um, under a so-called OTA, Other Transaction Authority, required them only to supply prototypes, nothing else. So I wonder if any of the patients were ever informed about this. I mean, those patients who received these injections, you're, you're saying, I'm saying prototypes, you're saying R&D batches, but that's that amounts uh, to the same thing, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. P pilot batches is normally called. Pilot I mean, batches. You know, okay. The first, um, your first small batch is a pilot batch. You normally have a pilot plant, and then the pilot plant, um, then I guess technology transferred into the larger commercial mm -hmm. plant, and then it's all scaled up, and and the proper technology transfer for agreements and GMP and 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 DDP. So, so what I'm saying is. It would obviously be more difficult to engineer, um, uh, to purposely engineer um, harm than it would for it to happen uh, uh, on its own because the standards have been so bad. Um, so, and I can't tell you, there's obviously orchestration here, there's coordination, I mean, who had the placebos, who had this, that, and the other. And I, I know people who are particularly on some of the committees and the, you know, initially at, you know, would be at GSK or whatever, who were closely involved in developing these vaccines. Um, they will have been orchestrating these things knowing that they were not right. Of course. So, but, but is it true? So you think that it's only the 30, 
Pfizer should be liable for the misdeeds of ICON because they outsourced the clinical research, the contract research, research stuff to ICON. So you know, there's supposed to be written, detailed written agreements in place that specify if you outsource something, it's in all the guidance, all the rules. Mm -hmm. You have to explain to the contractor exactly what their role is, what they have to do, and what your role is, because the company that's got the authorization, they are the only ones who know what's in the license. They're the only one who knows the whole picture. So they have to give the picture to each of the various constituents in the clinical and the manufacturing side of it. And they've been very quiet and not talking about the chemistry manufacturing and control section of the dossier. Safety and clinical, people think, well, you know, maybe you could do that quickly, but the, the chemistry manufacturing control is always going to take a long time. As I say, it's like taking a, making a plane. You know, if this was a plane crash, Boeing manufacturers, they would all be on top of this like a rash. You know, they'd be in there, they'd be taking measurements and, and the whole thing. What are these companies doing? They're sitting back and leaving it all go on, you know, because no one's saying, hang on, you made these things. <laughs> you know, they're going to patients. You better be sorting this out. Get in there and tell us what went wrong. But they aren't doing it. Yeah, now they're even thinking about getting rid of uh, clinical trials altogether. I mean, doesn't this quite obviously show which direction we're headed? No one cares about healthcare here. Everyone seems to care about profits, quick uh, profits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the, the, to me, the CDC have sort of taken over from, F we have now got these committees passing drugs. And whereas in the past, you know, F and I don't know, maybe I'm going back a bit, but FDA were responsible for approving drugs. There may be some consultations, but, you know, FDA were responsible. They are the competent authority for medicines and medical devices um, and, and, and diagnostics. In the, you know, in the UK, and I just keep going back, you know, a competent authority has, has delegated authority to approve drugs on behalf of government. So, and, and I always got under, under the impression that was FDA, that is, you know, Title 21 of the Code of Federal, Federal Regulations in, in the US, Title 21, it's law, uh, it's hugely detailed. And so why aren't they saying they've all broken the law? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Why? Well, quite obviously, we do have huge conflicts of interest. If you just look at the FDA, we know from uh, a an interview that was conducted with a hidden camera that they still, I mean, this is a private, privately founded organization in 1913. And we know that it still receives, I think, more than 50% of its funding from the pharmaceutical industry. And you, you heard the story from Brooke Jackson, how she, uh, as a whistleblower, um, she um, confided in the FDA and then she got fired a day later or so. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. No, so uh, what, what we I don't think this the, I don't think there is even a remote chance of uh, fixing this completely broken system. So when you're asking what's going to happen when this is all over and the people who are responsible are going to be brought to justice, I think no one will ever, ever have any trust in the pharmaceutical industry ever again. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I don't think that's a bad thing because if you look <laughs> at his, if you look at his track record, 
you know, Vioxx, uh, you know, the, 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 yeah. you know, the whole thing. But in those days, you know, there was, there was a person at FDA who stuck to that like a dog with a bone mm -hmm. and they put their neck out and they eventually, you know, caught up with Merck and it was stopped. Um, but as various sort of, you know, you look at the last few heads of FDA, you know, the, you know, on the Pfizer board, on the Moderna, you know, mm -hmm. you know, conflicts of interest, but you couldn't get more. So, yeah, yeah it's um, it's it's a broken industry, and people have lost trust. Uh, do we? Uh, and I, I'm a big advocate of functional medicine, and you know, basically, all medicine should be evidence based. Yes, uh, it used to be, and there are many ways now of developing the evidence. But the regulators really aren't uh, don't appear to be on board with it. So is it mm -hmm. is it possible to have a uh, to have a look inside all those papers, those control procedures, and those documents uh, which are done by the FDA? Is it are they transparent? Is do they have to present them to public what they found when they made controls and how often they made controls, how they made the control? and all the results, do they have to publish this on demand? Um, well, there's a lot of claims that things are confidential. These days. One thing the FDA have always published is, is the results of inspections, what they call four eight, FDA 483s. So if they go into a site, they publish the report and they publish and, you know, they may actually um, stop a company operating or go into special measures. Um, and I'm not, if they're not going into these companies, we're not seeing the inspections. Um, that, to me, that is the crucial measure is inspectors. And, I, you know, I, I co-chaired an FDA conference in Cincinnati for, for three years, 2011 to 2013. And this is just after the heparin and the falsified medicine directive. And they were good. They were good people. They, you know, they they come there with their guns and their not not all of them, but you know, and they were really dedicated. And I'm I'm not saying at the top, you know, things might have been you know a lot worse, but the people with their feet on the ground, they they wanted to do the the the, the, the right thing. But I forgot may have said that now. Mm -hmm. so, so yeah, these these inspections, that is a glaring gap. You know, if there was a restaurant in your town where people would go in there, they were um, coming away with food poisoning, and the inspector said, "No, I won't. I won't go along and inspect it. I'm sure it'd be okay." Then you'd, you'd <laughs> that's think exactly what happened here. That's exactly what's happened. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Now, but and and you know, the the customer practice at the FDA has always been these pre-approval inspections, and I naively thought at some point. People were going to realize that, you know, all these things have been skipped and missed and not done. But it seems that um, I was reading the 21st Century Cures Act 2016, 2016. I, I thought that was good because I could see it was about patient centered medicine. But actually, you've got this bioweapons thing in there, which basically, if it's a pandemic, um, then everything's, you know, GMP is waived, everything's waived. Well, if you wave GMP, you're going to kill people anyway. So, you know, you have to judge them. Is this pandemic going to kill people more than us not uh, applying the regulations? Um, I don't know, but. Uh... Yeah, it's a shame.
but it's a deadly shame. Well, yeah, Hedley, yeah. um, I thank you for your time and for your effort. I think you're going to get a lot more people who are going to take a closer look at the books you've written. Um, I had no idea that practically everything has been outsourced by these companies. I mean, small wonder with BioNTech or BioNTech, uh, it's probably an outfit with just a few people. They can't do anything. I think they were just being used as a front. So if anything goes wrong, they're going to let them go. That's that's in my view. That's what what they probably have in mind. They're going to go. Yeah, they're going to let uh, them go uh, bankrupt, absolutely. and then Pfizer um, is hoping to hide behind. I've them. lost you. Yeah. Can you still hear me? Yeah, yeah, I can hear you. Picture's frozen. Yeah, now you're frozen. Okay. In the meantime, well, Hedley, I'm. If you can still hear us, uh, thank you very much for this for this insight into almost everything that goes wrong in that industry. As you said, uh, all of this outsourcing is what brought them to their knees. Um, I don't think they're ever going to have regain any trust uh, from the general population. Thank you again. Now. Um, Let's turn to um, someone who's been waiting for 20 minutes now. That's Margaret Anna Ellis. Um, Margaret, are you with us? Yes, just one second. Okay. Hi, can you see me? Hi, Hear Margaret. Me? Yeah, we can, we can see you. Uh, we were connected with the help of uh, Leslie, right? Leslie Manukian. Yes. Excellent. Exactly. So let me give you a, let me give our viewers a brief introduction. You're a writer and blogger blogger <clears throat> on Substack, on Substack um, through the Looking Glass, examining media narratives, propaganda, mass control, politics, psychology, history, philosophy, and health with a focus on COVID to unmask totalitarianism. You're also you're also the author of books and articles. Here's a selection. The Vapor, The Hot Hat, and The Witch's Potion 2021 is a COVID new normal great reset fairy tale. A mostly peaceful depopulation <laughs> 2022. And you can tell us a little bit about um, so, uh, uh, or the introduction you're going to give us is a synopsis of the past two years formulated as why questions, the answers to which can only be one profit and two power and three demo side. The definition and nature of a philanthropath like Bill Gates, a socio slash psychopath masquerading as a philanthropist, the reality of the unfolding demo side and progression to one world dictatorship, Evidence documenting the depopulation agenda dating back to the Club of Rome, 1971, predicament of mankind project and 1974 Kissinger report, and up through the present day prophecies of Yuval Noah Harari, a historian making giving us prophecies. That those are pretty <laughs> strong words. I, I can't wait to hear what you have to tell us. Okay, well, first of all, thank you so much for inviting me. It is an absolute honor and joy to work with thank all you. of you. Um, Rainer, uh, I have such great gratitude to the work that you and Vivian have both been doing. And 
I wanted to say specifically, there was a video you presented to the a London protest where you were talking, you were sharing that story of the German doctor who was waiting at the ATM. Yeah. And there was an elderly woman and she was fearful because he wasn't wearing a mask and he came up and removed her mask gently and hugged her. And she said she hadn't been hugged for a year. And that was so touching to me. And I included that in my letter to a Covidian, um, one of the articles at my Substack, And um, it, it really resonates with people. And I think it captures so well the dehumanization yeah. that has occurred over the past two years. And all of these measures that have been intentionally instituted to disconnect us. And so the work that you guys have been doing, um, basically what was strange is what you started doing in July, 2020 is what I would have expected any government or public health agency to do. Yeah. I mean, why weren't they interviewing scientists and physicians and experts and making these voices public in a transparent, open way? That was one of the first signs to me that something was very different about this entire process. Mm -hmm. And so um, for me, I very early on, you know, basically from the beginning, like February 2020, I could tell that this was unfolding in a way that was unlike any past um, event like this. And, you know, in the past, so one of the questions I asked is, you know, why are they stoking fear? Why are they, you know, whipping up all of this panic? If this were a genuine crisis like has occurred in the past, a responsible government would be trying to calm the people yeah. down. Um, and then you look at, okay, well, this is a phenomenon that essentially uh, only has a fatality rate of 99.9% .9 for the majority of the populace. Um, the only people who survival tend to be affected. Rate. Survival rate. Survival rate, sorry. <laughs> yes, thank you. <laughs> the, the only people who tend to, um, you know, die from it are people who are likely to die anyway. So the very elderly, the very ill, people with a lot of comorbidities. So that, again, was a very clear sign that this was a manufactured crisis. And so other questions I started asking, and I've kind of group these into different categories. So the first one is under totalitarianism. So again, why are they instituting these severe measures like lockdowns and border closures and things that the WHO in their 2019 recommendations for flu and respiratory illnesses said, you should not institute these kind of protocols in the case of a pandemic because they are more harmful and they are ineffective. Masking even, they said, did not help, did not prevent the spread of respiratory illnesses and flus. And so everything they were doing was contrary to previous conventional health recommendations. Not only was it contrary to what they would normally recommend in a case like this, it, they were actually harmful. So they were causing stress, which has a huge, takes a huge toll on the immune system. They were causing all this fear and division and hatred and rage. They were whipping people up into this uh, hate against each other. And it was basically dividing the populace into those who complied and those who didn't comply. 
And so we had this situation where the propagandists were all perpetrating the exact same narrative, all speaking in unison. Everybody started repeating these mottos and social distancing. Never heard that term before, but everybody's parroting these same terms. You know, the new normal and this Orwellian gem together apart. Um, so it's just very double think. And so yeah. these to me were all the hallmarks of what occurs when a society is progressing to totalitarianism. And it just so happened that, you know, I have been, you know, for basically all my life, I've been reading across a wide variety of disciplines. Um, I've always been very interested in health and wellness, but also um, totalitarianism, genocide, um, all of these different aspects that courts propaganda that were converging in this one event. And to me, it was very clear that this was artificial, that it was created for an end goal. And I don't know if you guys have read any Edward Bernays books like Propaganda, 1928 um, work. He is you know, the nephew of Freud and he was using uh, psychology to craft the art of public relations. Yeah, and well, one of the Matthias Desmet uh, refers to him yeah. quite frequently. Mm -hmm. Yes. And he spells it all out in his book, Propaganda. Um, mm -hmm. At a certain point, I, I might uh, read a quote from him if we have time. Mm -hmm. But it, it's totally unabashed. And the way it works is you start with your end goal. So what do you want to bring the people to a belief in and action? And, you know, it's basically social engineering. And so, for example, um, when they wanted to get women to start smoking cigarettes so the cigarette companies could have a wider consumer base, um, Bernays orchestrated a women's liberation parade on Easter Day, 1928. Mm -hmm. And he had um, these glamorous women smoking these torches for freedom. And it was then associated with the women's liberation movement, the suffragettes, and that essentially um, led to women starting to smoke and adopt that. And, you know, so basically what you, in public relations, what you do is you start with the end goals and then you you determine what events you need to stage in order to get those end goals. So in the example of what was happening right now, um, as you said in your introduction, essentially, if you look at the end goals of, okay, we wanna have enormous profits, we wanna have the largest transfer, mass transfer of wealth from the lower and middle classes to the upper middle classes, the elite, the super wealthy, the corporations, the governments. Um, okay, check. <laughs> Two, we want to give uh, the people an excuse or motivate them to be accepting of more authoritarian measures to people in democracies actually being willing to essentially sacrifice their privacy, their liberties, all of these things that we supposedly cherish in these countries. Um, if it's in the name of safety, if it's in the name of public health, if it's in the name of the public greater good, um, you can get them to relinquish those, uh, you know, natural rights. 
um, to the state. And so they, once again, with the corona crisis, were able to get people in that state of panic and fear and wanting to cling to something of safety. And of course, Matthias Desmond talks about this social bonding that occurs. So you have the people who are feeling all lonely and isolated and full of rage and fear. And this gives them a focus of attention to cling to and bond over. And those who are outside the group who are not going along with the narrative become the enemy. And of course, as you see in genocidal regimes, they always define an enemy that the inner group can bond over hating. And of course, in 1984, you have Goldstein and he is the object and focus of their hatred and it bonds them more tightly together. And that is another reason it is so difficult to uh, penetrate this cult-like programming of the Covidians. And so essentially, uh, you know, Matthias Desmond has talked a lot about this and so I don't wanna rehash all of that. Um, but these were all kind of the questions that were coming up as far as, you know, why are all these things occurring that have never occurred, at least in America in the past, or these are the types of patterns that we see in, you know, Nazi Germany, Stalinist Russia, um, all of these, you know, Maoist China, and even contemporary China, really. So these were all very clear signs that something was amiss and something was being intentionally orchestrated. And then the third item that you mentioned earlier is democide. And so I'm going to get to that in a little bit in terms of the signs that I was seeing that were making me very suspicious that that was occurring and intentionally so. And so, um, you know, other things like in terms of the health policies, otherwise that I was asking is, you know, why are we being commanded to trust the science, this appeal to authority? Um, that's not how science works. Um, scientific, the scientific process is a process. It's about inquiry. It's about bringing in all these different voices, testing hypotheses, listening to other voices. Well, the very opposite of that was occurring. And um, this is essentially scientism, um, which I'm not sure if you're familiar with this, but in Hannah Arendt's Origins of Totalitarianism, she references a 1948 article called The Origins of Scientism. Mm -hmm. And um, that is essentially science becomes the religion and whoever is defining the quote science is the God, the church, the priesthood. And anyone who questions that is considered a heretic. And so once again, this was clearly all about religion, not actual real science. And so any of the scientific voices that could see through the lies were being silenced and suppressed and censored. And again, even I, for example, I was trying to reach out to people in my community, you know, during 2020, and I was on things like Nextdoor. Anytime I would even mention your name, Rainer, or Mike Yeadon, or David Martin, my comment would immediately get deleted. And so it, that was just, this is a different, entirely different era. Something's very clearly being very controlled through big tech, big media. Um, and essentially they are corralling people into this single 
narrative that anything that deviates from that, you're not even allowed to look at, not allowed to listen to, not allowed to think about. And so the people who were questioning the narrative had to go make an extra effort to seek out that truth and that information. And that is one reason that I appreciated your interview so much. And what I was finally hearing these voices of sanity who were explaining all of these things that I knew were absolute lies, and then also offering the contrary scientific actual information about these phenomena. And so, and Planet Lockdown was another wonderful source. Oval Media has been fantastic, and I know you've worked with them a lot. And so I've, I was really grateful for that. So anyway, um, in my own journey, I ended up instead starting a Substack last year, and that connected with me with all of these other truth seekers. And that essentially was a profound experience. And I, you know, not to be like a Substack ad, but I feel like all of these independent critical thinkers were gathering together in this place. And there was sort of a reformation going on in the, in the science, world of science. So it was like the equivalent to the Protestant Reformation in the church. So instead of having to go through the media and these spokespersons to get the quote science and what they deem to be the truth, I was able to reach out directly to real scientists, you know, Malone and Jessica Rose and Meryl Nass and all these people um, I've been so grateful to be connected with and Mike Eden, who's become a dear friend. So anyway, I just feel like that whole process has been an unexpected uh, blessing that's occurred because the tyrants have clamped down so hard, it's caused this ricochet effect that all of us are coming together and seeking out and finding the truth and sharing this knowledge in this amazing new way. So I think it's it's um, had this boomerang that is really going to come back and haunt them. That's um, a cool term. We're gonna we're gonna use this ricochet effect. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Great. <laughs> So, um, so the other, some of the other whys I've, I had is why are they not uh, promoting early treatment protocols? Um, you know, normally in a situation like this, one of the first things they would do is seek out existing drugs, repurpose them, see what is successful. Um, now, of course, there were physicians doing this and they were being silenced and they were being suppressed. And they had amazing results. They saved tens of thousands, if not more, people through these early treatment protocols, as you know, ivermectin, the FLCCC protocols, all of those. Um, so anyway, and I know, and I'm so glad that you spoke with Tess Laurie, because I feel like her example of that Zoom call between her and Andrew Hill is the perfect demonstration of exactly how science has been corrupted. And you see, essentially, Andrew Hill had altered his own conclusions to conform to the outcomes that Unitaid, which is a Bill and Melinda Gates a vehicle, um, demanded. And they, Unitaid had just given a $40 million grant to his university, the University of Liverpool. So you see how the manipulation works. And that's how the, quote, science with a dollar sign and a trademark works as opposed to the real science that Tess Laurie represents and her discovery that ivermectin 
could save potentially 80% of the patients who are dying from COVID or the symptoms of COVID. And so anyway, that I feel encapsulates the corruption of science that has occurred and why it is so necessary to create alternative parallels such as the World Council for Health like Tess has done to have um, organizations and people of integrity who are uncorrupted by conflicts of interest. Um, so anyway, that was the early treatment protocol story. And then the other thing I was asking about is, okay, so we have this brand new technology, mRNA technology, never has it been deployed on human beings before. It hasn't even gone through long-term clinical trials, but let's suddenly require the entire world to get injected with this novel gene therapy without having run tests and doing operation warp speed, which essentially means skipping all of the safety trials. <laughs> this made absolutely no sense to me, and especially to do it for what is essentially you know, a flu-like experience that was not causing severe levels of death and illness which ties into another thing that was happening, which is all of these terms were getting redefined. So for example, during the swine flu epidemic, um, and the term pandemic was redefined. So they removed that it has high levels of, you know, mass death and illness. So essentially that set things up so the who could declare a, an emergency or a pandemic any time they wanted really, you know, on a whim essentially. And so what has happened is it, that gives them the ability to keep us in a permanent state of emergency and allow for all of these emergency powers to be instituted essentially permanently. And so, as you know, they're attempting to expand that through the pandemic accord that is being proposed by the WHO. So, Anyway, so that is, these were just kind of some of the whys that were, I was asking, and I have a few thousand more, but I'm not going to go through them all. But I will um, publish my notes um, at, as a blog post at my website if anybody wants um, to read through them and have more details. So um, basically, then we start having 2021, essentially mass casualty events, and we start seeing people who are young, healthy, athletic children suddenly dropping dead. Um, and, you know, you, all you simply have to do is look at the OpenVares website, openvares.com. Anybody can do it. You just take five minutes and you can see the fatality rates of, and adverse reactions just shooting up in 2021. And you have these uh, life insurance companies having reports of these massive increases in mortality for millennials and for people who are young and healthy. And the only thing that has changed from 2020, which was supposedly such a catastrophic year because of COVID, to 2021 is the introduction of a global mass injection campaign of an experimental drug that it you know, Pfizer is still in clinical trials until March, 2023. People don't even know they are, you know, experimental subjects. And of course they're not being given informed consent. And as you, you know, all the things that are being violated. 
And so um, essentially all of these things, you know, like you, I've just been pulling thousands of different puzzle pieces together. And the picture that it very clearly forms is that these are all intentionally being orchestrated That's to generate that's What's that? A crucial point, because if you exactly. just look, you know, you spoke about the, I, I wouldn't even call them alternative methods of treatment, I call them real methods of treatment. If you yes. look at that, and if you look at how in Canada, for example, they threatened doctors who would use ivermectin, that they would take away their licenses. This exactly. is and intense. Meryl Nass yeah, got her they license. took it away from her. Yeah, mm -hmm. she'll mm -hmm. be reinstated after this is also. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I mean, all of the doctors who demonstrated integrity and adhered to the Hippocratic Oath and spoke out and spoke the truth are absolute heroes. And like in any totalitarian regime, they are suffering because of their bravery but ultimately they will be recognized for the heroes they truly are i think so too yeah yeah and so um now i know you wanted me to talk about the depopulation agenda yeah, well, so this I, is uh, democide i've never heard this <laughs> word before you haven't heard democide no. okay okay so essentially um well genocide is the targeting of a specific ethnic group mm -hmm. for extermination mm -hmm. democide is the not it's essentially targeting, targeting people the whole exactly, populace mm -hmm. exactly so demos mm -hmm. people and so basically um this is not targeting a specific um ethnicity so that's why it's in incorrect to call it a genocide um but it is essentially indiscriminately mm -hmm. targeting the entire human population um anyone who has been duped into taking these experimental injections the ones who have either died immediately or whose immune systems are being progressively decimated with each subsequent shot. Um, and they are suffering cases of, you know, COVID and other illnesses at significantly higher rates than the uninjected. And so you see the, and I, I don't remember the, the specific figure, but in uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. has spoken about how the most profitable thing for the pharmaceutical medical complex are the vax injured because they provide a source of recurring revenue and um, especially for the people with the COVID injection specifically because it causes as the Pfizer clinical trial data from the first 90 days showed, I believe it was 1,291 side effects. Um, that they documented. And so that is a treasure trove of profit for the um, big pharma and big medical, <laughs> the big medical complex. And so um, basically, these are things that are being very intentionally done for profit to reduce the population and to institute authoritarian controls. And so um, I mentioned earlier that I was going to read an Edward Bernays quote, and I, I just came across it. So here it is. The conscious and intelligent manipulation of the organized habits and opinions of the masses is an important element in democratic society. 
those who manipulate this unseen mechanism of society constitute an invisible government, which is the true ruling power of our country. We are governed, our minds are molded, our tastes formed, our ideas suggested, largely by men we have never heard of. This is a logical result of the way in which our democratic society is organized. Vast numbers of human beings must cooperate in this manner if they are live, to live together as a smoothly functioning society. In almost every act of our daily lives, whether in the sphere of politics or business, in our social conduct or our ethical thinking, we are dominated by the relatively small number of persons who understand the mental processes and social patterns of the masses. It is they who pull the wires which control the public mind. And so he wasn't writing that critically. He was essentially writing that as an instruction booklet for those who wish to engineer the public mind. Well, it's and of an course, instruction for psychological terrorism. Exactly, exactly. And that actually segues uh, beautifully to one of the uh, assets that I asked Corbin to provide, which is, are you familiar with Biderman's chart of coercion? Yes. yes. Okay. Okay. So I... Um, Corbin, could you go ahead and pull that up just so people can see that? Uh, we've discussed this actually already in detail. I think we should not oh. like look at uh, but the Biden oh, uh, chart again. Okay, great, great. I'll go ahead and skip over that then. Okay, so um, now let's go ahead and Let, jump tell directly. Us this, tell us about, the, I, th I find this fascinating, philanthropaths. So yes, yes. <laughs> masquerading, Ooh. that's that's interesting. I mean, pretty yes. much everyone gets the idea, but please tell us mm -hmm. about that. Yes, yeah, so I just published this three-part series of articles called Anatomy of a Philanthropath, Dreams of Democide and Dictatorship. And so I coined the term philanthropath, um, which I had originally defined as a socio-slash-psychopath masquerading as a philanthropist. Mm -hmm. um, but on reflection, I've actually decided to change that to a psychopath because a psychopath pretends to care, whereas a sociopath doesn't bother to hide that they don't care. Mm -hmm. So I feel it's much more appropriate just to say a psychopath, and they have the semblance of an ordinary life or, you know, participating in society, um, but they are simply masking their, um, you know, the fact that they don't have any compassion for other human beings. And so... So I use that term and I know you guys understand the importance of framing. And so my goal is to kind of inject that term philanthropath into the public consciousness. So anytime anybody sees someone like Bill Gates, George Soros, Klaus Schwab, the first thing they think of is philanthropath. And I just want people to start using that as much as they possibly can because the propagandists use repetition and viralization to propagate their lies. So we need to counteract that with framing that propagates the truth. And so that essentially lays bare the um, sinister intentions of people like Bill Gates who are masquerading as philanthropists. So um, now I'm going to, and 
getting into there is this long history yeah that uh, is important because most people think oh this has just come up no it right, hasn't right mm -hmm. right exactly and so um you know in this series of articles i really only went back to the 1970s but i'm sure it goes way back beyond that and i yeah. you know i can only do so much at a time and i'm just going down all these different rabbit holes um but there has been, you know, dating back to the Malthusian theory that essentially population is increasing exponentially, whereas resources are increasing, increasing linearly. So there was a concern that overpopulation was a, a serious problem that was going to need to be addressed essentially through the reduction of the population. Um, now, as it turns out, those models were essentially as fake as the models that were used to project COVID fatality rates and use that as an excuse to institute these um, totalitarian measures. And so um, James Corbett, I, I include a video by James Corbett in uh, my first article in this series that essentially debunks the Malthusian overpopulation theories and shows that it is not the threat that these philanthropaths believe it to be or want us to believe it to be. And so, um, and then even Pew Research um, did a study that determined that population was actually going to start declining um, by around 2100. And so it is not this continually exponentially expanding thing, especially as birth rates rot drop, fertility rates drop, and deaths in, you know, the replacement rate is not matching the number of deaths. So anyway, um, the, in, and you probably have heard this quote by Prince Philip, um, but he famously said, in the event that I am reincarnated, I would like to return as a deadly virus to contribute something to solving overpopulation. Yeah. And so um, that kind of, shows you the mentality of the people who are behind what we are experiencing right now. And um, so going back to the 1970s, it was actually in 1968 that the Club, Club of Rome was founded and by a group of like 30 different scientists, educators, um, and they, they call themselves like an invisible university, I think was the term. Um, but they're essentially a think tank, and they worked on the project, the predicament of mankind, and um, Dennis Lynn Meadows was one of the primary authors, and they also developed, or he wrote a book a few years later in 1974 titled The Limits to Growth that outlined these theories as well. But essentially, they see the human population um, as a threat to the planet and mm -hmm. sustainability. And so he very clearly stated that the population has to be reduced. And this is where I'll go ahead and play a video of Dennis Lynn Meadows um, talking in a 2017 interview about these concerns. So Corbin- So far, globally, you are so far above the population and the consumption levels, which can be supported by this planet that I know in one way or another, it's going to come back down. So I don't hope to avoid that. Uh, I hope that it can occur in a, a, a civil 
way. I, 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 and I mean civil in a, in a special way. I, peaceful. Peace doesn't mean uh, that everybody's happy, but it means that conflict isn't solved through violence, through, through force, uh, but rather in other ways. And so uh, that's what I hope for. Um, that we can, I mean, the planet can support something like a billion people, maybe two billion, depending on how much liberty and how much material consumption you want to have. If you want more liberty and more consumption, you have to have fewer people. And conversely, you can have more people. I mean, we could even have eight or nine billion, probably, if we have a very strong dictatorship, which is smart. It's, unfortunately, you never have smart dictatorships. They're always stupid. So, But if you had a smart dictatorship and a low standard of living, you can have it. But, but we want to have freedom and we want to have a high sense. So we're going to have a billion people. And we're now at seven, so we have to get back down. I hope that this can be slow, relatively slow, and that it can be done in a way which is relatively equal, uh, you know, so that people share uh, the experience and you don't have a few rich, you know, trying to force everybody else to, to deal with it. So those are my hopes. I mean, these are pretty pessimistic hopes, you know, but I mean, that's... Well, it's obvious that the man, first of all, doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. And secondly, he's not hoping for a peaceful resolution. Right. He's hoping to get away with his monstrous ideas. But he won't. Right. Is he still exactly. alive? Yes. Okay. Yes. Mm -hmm. well, we know that the population uh, starts having less children when they are all well. When they, we know that all the populations that are well that have uh, enough to, to live and have houses and have food, that they think about children and they have one or two. In, in Europe, the parents, they have uh, not even enough to keep the same level. So it's automatically when the people are living well, that they yes. get less children. Nobody has to be killed. Nobody has We've to We've had die. a decrease in population yeah. growth for years now. Yes. And I... this, and you, we, we were always thinking that if, if we have good living conditions for many people in this world, then automatically this, this will be the normal uh, demographic development that the people get less children and so that right. the population dims a little bit. So there is yes, a self-regulation, yes. there is a self-regulation, but there's no one who should ever decide who has to live and who not. And this is exactly. what the, this is what they're trying to do. They know better. They think they think they know better, and they kill others with what they do. Yes, yes. You you stated it perfectly, Wolfgang. And um, you know they don't just want us to eat bugs. They see us as bugs, yeah. and they feel they have the right to exterminate the excess bugs because they are saving the planet by doing so and this warped philanthropathic mentality. It's a horrible thing because those people who were, who were exploiting this world, who were going to Africa, keeping the people poor, exploiting yes. all, this, all the riches there, there are in these countries, they, they have so much, they are so rich normally, but it was yes. all taken away and it was all, it was all used 
for, for some people to get richer and richer and more power and more power. It was Absolutely. exploited. And those people now, exactly those people, those rich people who exploited, they tell now the others, no, you should not live. You show you're too much. It's it's horrible. Yeah, yeah. It's brutal. Yeah, absolutely conscienceless. Um, so yeah, <laughs> so that's um, Dennis Lynn Meadows. That's kind of the philosophy behind the Club of Rome, which still exists, which is still promoting these philosophies. Of course, they have a pretty picture of themselves that they present to the public. But that is the thinking that's presented in their predicament of mankind report and the limits to growth book. And um, so they have essentially appointed themselves gods of the planet with the power to determine who is to live and who is to die. And, um, you know, of course, Dennis Lynn Meadows hopes this will, will happen in a mostly peaceful way. And what more peaceful way than to get people to volunteer for their own suicide <laughs> unsuspectingly by being terrorized to think to be yeah. so afraid of COVID that they will leap to the first savior that has been presented to them, which is the injection. And that is why it was so necessary to discredit early treatment protocols, not only be, also because that was the only way they could get the emergency use authorization that guaranteed them liability or protection from liability. But you know, they had to essentially create this one single solution. This is our way out of the essentially imprisonment and torture that they created. Um, and they say, okay, this is our solution. Well, then they keep moving the goalposts because, oh, gee, breakthrough infections. Oh, gee, people who got injected are actually getting COVID more often and more severely and are being hospitalized more and are dying at astronomical rates. Um, whoops. <laughs> now we have to invent SADS, sudden adult death syndrome, because there's only so many, you know, so long you can go where people are noticing, oh, gee, all these young, healthy people are dying, you know, right after or, you know, not long after getting injected. Um, but, you know, as Matthias Desmond once again points out, when people are in this state of mass hypnosis, they will go along with all, all of the most ridiculous lies. And he often uses the example of you can cut, you, if you put a patient under hypnosis, you can cut into them, have surgery, they won't even notice. And so that is essentially what is occurring right now. Um, so I'm going to go into some more of these um, democidal types of philosophers and the people who influence the philanthropaths. And so um, one, uh, another person who I didn't cover in my uh anatomy of a philanthropath series because I had already covered him in an earlier piece called Letter to a Holocaust Denier. Um, and his name is Jacques Attali. Are you, oh, I don't yeah. know if you're familiar. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Francois Mitterrand, special advisor. Yeah. So I, I will only just he, he's, read a uh, he's, he's basically the French counterpart to Dennis Lynn Meadows, I'd say. Yes, mm. yes. And kind of the progenitor of Yuval yeah. Noah Harari as yeah. well. And so I'm just going to read a, a couple examples of quotes that touch on this topic. Um, and he, he talks about as soon as you go beyond 60 to 65 years old, 
people live longer than they produce and they cost society dearly. And so he's coming at this from a socialist perspective. <laughs> and so he says, as a socialist, I am objectively opposed to extending life because it is an illusion, a false problem. And he says, as a futurist, he's predicting um, euthanasia will be one of the essential instruments of our future societies in all cases. In a socialist logic to begin with, the problem is as follows. Socialist logic is freedom and fundamental freedom is suicide. <laughs> Consequently, the right to direct or indirect suicide is an absolute value in this type of society. So you see how inverted their morality is. And there is they, no morality. There exactly. is no, the man is stark raving mad. It's so obviously, <laughs> I mean, really. Yeah, yeah. And so um, this is how they justify to themselves these types of um, measures that essentially are resulting in the mur mass murder of people. Exactly. Um, and so then we get into Yuval Noah Harari, who is Klaus Schwab's advisor, and he program he does programming for the World Economic Forum, and so he has been extremely influential. And I'm uh, let's see, let's go ahead and play um, the Yuval Noah Harari video, Corbin. We, we yeah okay. Well, I think maybe in a couple of decades when people look back, the thing they will remember from the COVID crisis is this is the moment when everything went digital and if this is this was the moment when every, everything became monitored that we agreed to be surveyed all all the time not just in authoritarian machines but even in democracies and maybe most importantly at all this was the moment when surveillance started going under the skin because really we haven't seen anything yet I mean, I think that the big process that's happening right now in the world is uh, hacking human beings, the ability to hack humans, to understand deeply what's happening within you, what, what, makes, you, what, what, what makes you go. And for that, the most important data is not what you read and who you meet and what you buy, it's what's happening inside your body. So we had these two big revolutions, the computer science revolution or the infotech revolution and the revolution in the biological sciences. And they are still separate, but they are about to merge. They are merging around, I would say, the biometric sensor. It's the thing, it's the gadget, it's the technology that converts biological data into digital data that can be analyzed by computers. And having the ability to really monitor people under the skin, this is the, the biggest game changer of all. Uh, because this is the key for getting to know people better than they know themselves. I often give the example from my own personal life that I realized I was gay only when I was 21. And I keep thinking about the time when I was 15, 16, how could I have missed it? You know, so, something so important about myself should have been obvious, but I didn't know. Now, today or in five or 10 years, any algorithm uh, of Microsoft or Amazon or the government would be able to know such a thing when I'm 12 or 13 just by monitoring what's happening in my body, what's happening to my eyes 
when I, let's say I see a boy and a girl walking on the beach? Where do my eyes focus? So this is the crucial revolution. And COVID is critical because this is what convinces people to accept, to legitimize total biometric surveillance. If we want to stop this epidemic, we need not just to monitor people, we need to monitor what's happening under their skin, their body temperature. Like we walked in here, we had to go through a body temperature test. Even in Israel, it has become a national security yeah. issue, right? There. So again, I'm not against surveillance. It's an important tool, especially to fight epidemics. The question is again, who is doing it and how? If you give it to the security service to do it, that's extremely dangerous. Yes, now they are using it to see whether you have the coronavirus. But exactly the same technology can determine what you think about the government. You know, anger is a biological phenomena, just like disease. It's not some spiritual thing out there. It's a biological pattern in your body. With this kind of surveillance, I mean, you watch the big president, the big leader, gives a speech on television, the television could be monitoring you and knowing whether you're angry or not, just by analyzing the cues, the biological cues coming from your body. So you now people are now watching us online, all over the world, this, this conversation. Now, maybe even right now, the people who are watching us are being watched and analyzed and you know, the thing is, it's not just you're now watching this. The thing is, we know that you're watching this and we also know how you feel. Are you angry about what you hear? Are you frightened? Are you bored? This is the kind of power that Stalin didn't have. You know, when Stalin gave a speech, everybody, of course, clapped their hand and smiled. Now, how do you know what they really think about Stalin? It's very difficult. You can't have a KGB agent following everybody all the time. Even if, even if you do it, he's just watching your outside behavior. He doesn't really know what's happening in your mind. But in 10 years, the future Stalins of the 21st century, they could be watching the minds, the brains of all the population all the time. And also they will have the computing power to analyze all that. You know, it's not just having an agent following everybody all the time. The agent in Stalin's days writes a paper report and it, you have these millions of paper reports piling up in Moscow. Somebody needs to read them, to analyze them. That's impossible. Now you don't need human agents. You don't need human analyzers. You just have a lot of sensors and an AI which analyzes it. And that's it. You have the worst totalitarian regime in history. And COVID is important because COVID legitimizes some of the crucial steps, even in democratic countries. That wraps it all up. I mean, the most uh, embarrassing aspect about this is how these people, these other people, rapidly listen to this obviously yeah. very shallow bullshit of a man who seems to have serious problems. So right, what, what is right. really going on? This is what we talked about when we spoke about him uh, in on one of our, our events in Tampa. This is projection. These people yeah. have serious problems with themselves. So if they if they try to tell us that transhuman, transhumanism is the solution, well, it may be the solution for them, but not for us.
not for right, us. Right, right. Yeah, and um, you raise an interesting point. And I, I discussed this in more in depth in my third part of the series. But the thing that's so fascinating about Yuval Noah Harari is he claims to be warning against the possibility that this technology could be used for totalitarian um, total surveillance purposes. Yet at the same time, he has, if he is speaking truly and not hiding sinister intentions, he has this unbelievably naive belief that we can instead turn that technology for good, for beneficence, and it could result in the best possible society. And he wants us to put our faith in institutions, and he wants them to be more controlling of the information that is available. He He's, you know, promoting censorship of misinformation, things like that. And he thinks the organizations like the WEF and the WHO are working for the good of humanity and he's I don't think he thinks that he knows they're not i think this right. man is evil he just pretends yeah. if if he's a psychopath then he just pretends he knows right. he knows yeah, that, that he's that, that what he's talking about is monstrous right right and he's trying he says we should be giving more funds and more power yeah. to the who and yeah right <laughs> and you know, and essentially he is Klaus Schwab's advisor. And He's so his muse. They, they call him his muse. <laughs> yes, yes. And, yeah. you know, let's say we give Yuval Noah Harari the benefit of the doubt and say, oh, he I really won't. is. <laughs> I know, I know. But Klaus Schwab is taking his warnings as instructions. And he has essentially implemented exactly what is being warned against. And we are now, as Yuval just very clearly says, it was the COVID crisis that engineered the populace to be yeah. accepting of this biosurveillance technology. Um, now, in other contexts, he says, oh, well, part of the solution to keep us democratic and free is to surveil the governments as well, surveil corporations. Well, once again, unbelievably naive. I mean, he either has no awareness of history or he is, you know, no, he's, being lying. Duplicitous. he's obviously right. lying. He's so right. close to Klaus Schwab. He must know that Klaus Schwab and the WEF is producing their own politicians. He cannot right. be that right. stupid. I don't think he's a very smart man, but he cannot be that stupid. He's lying. Right. He's like, right, I right. hate, uh, listen, I hate to cut you short, uh, but we do have another guest who's sitting oh. in the wings and waiting to come oh, on. So, <laughs> oh, absolutely, no problem. So what I would do is I encourage everyone to sign up for my sub, sub stack because I'm going to publish the um, my full notes for this discussion because um, there's a lot I wasn't able to get to like the Henry Kissinger document and things like that. And if you go to margaretannaalice.com, um, and the Substack is called Margaret Anna Alice Through the Looking Glass. Um, sign up for notifications. You can read my Anatomy of a Philanthropath series, which covers a lot of this in detail. And then I will be um, publishing my notes either today or tomorrow, sometime this weekend, so people can get the full details. Very good. Well, thank okay. you very much. Thank you all so much. It was wonderful working with all of you, meeting with all of you. And have a great weekend. Without Thank people you. like Harari.
Yes, yes. Okay, you too. Okay. Bye, Take care. Bye bye. Bye bye. So, jetzt spielen wir noch ein schnelles Video zwischendurch, damit man auch mal sieht, was passiert. To see what goes on if people do wake up and uh, see, well, we are fed up. We don't see that in the mainstream media, but we've got a video with people in Ecuador protesting uh, in front of the uh, main government building. I don't think it's too bad to look at this kind of stuff so that you get an idea of that. Not all of us sitting in the corner and waiting for some uh, godish power to help us. Some people take action. Maybe one more video, because these are very calm, clear words from Rand Paul, who's one of the main figures in the U.S. fighting the measures. That's what we should look at to get out of the loop of it's all too bad. It is, but we have to address it and say this is it, and that's what he does to resist. They can't arrest all of us. They can't keep all of your kids home from school. They can't keep every government building closed, although I've got a long list of ones they might keep closed or might ought to keep closed. We don't have to accept the mandates, lockdowns, and harmful policies of the petty tyrants and bureaucrats. We can simply say no, not again. Nancy Pelosi, you will not arrest or stop me or anyone on my staff from doing our jobs. We have either had COVID, had the vaccine, or been offered the vaccine. We will make our own health choices. We will not show you a passport. We will not wear a mask. We will not be forced into random screenings and testings so you can continue your drunk with power reign over the Capitol. President Biden, we will not accept your agency's mandates or your reported moves towards a lockdown. No one should follow the CDC's anti-science mask mandates. And if you want to shut down federal agencies again, some of which aren't even back to work yet, I will stop every bill coming through the Senate with an amendment to cut their funding if they don't come back to work in person. Local bureaucrats and union bosses, we will not allow you to do more harm to our children again this year. Children are not at any more risk from COVID than they are from the seasonal flu. 
Every adult who works in schools has either had the vaccine or had their chance to get vaccinated. There is no reason for mask mandates, part-time schools, or any lockdown measures. Children are falling behind in school and are being harmed physically and psychologically by the tactics that you have used to keep them from the classroom during the last year. We won't allow it again. If a school system attempts to keep children from full-time in-person school, I will hold up every bill with two amendments, one to defund them and another to allow parents the choice of where the money goes for their child's education. Do I sound fed up to you? That's because I am. I'm not a career politician. I practiced medicine for 33 years. I graduated from Duke Medical School. I've worked in emergency rooms. I've studied immunology and virology, and I ultimately chose to become an eye surgeon. I've been telling everyone for a year now that Dr. Fauci and other public health bureaucrats were not following the science, and I've been proven right time and time again. But I'm not the only one who is fed up. I can't go anywhere these days without people coming up and thanking me for standing up for them, whether I'm at work or at events in Kentucky, at airports, in restaurants, or in stores. People thank me for taking a stand. They thank me for standing up for actual science, for standing up for freedom, for standing against mandates, lockdowns, and bureaucratic power grabs. I think the tide is turning as more and more people are willing to stand up. I see stories from across the country of parents standing up to the unions and school boards. I see brave moms standing up and saying, my kids need to go back to school in person. I see members of Congress refusing to comply with petty tyrant Pelosi. We are at a moment of truth and a crossroads. Will we allow these people to use fear and propaganda to do further harm to our society, economy, and children? Or will we stand together and say, absolutely not, not this time, I choose freedom. Besser kann man es nicht sagen. Und, uh, and uh, before we talk to Zoran Polen, I'll say in the end, we'll have two more video clips, one by a rabbi who will clearly tell us who really pulls the strings and the second video is from jp sears i think he's so funny as no other comedian at the time he puts things to the point and he's very courageous but let's move on to zurin thank you for taking over right you've been uh, we've known each other for a while were connected through a historic moment at the worst time of lockdown so far. The situation was such that you couldn't, um, restaurants weren't allowed to uh, cater to people. They didn't allow them to uh, come in. You're a barkeeper, rather a, a bar owner of the uh, Scotch and Sofa cocktail bar in Berlin. and. Uh, there was an assembly to uh, f establish a political party at some stage, and a lot of things happened afterwards, uh, um, social media shitstorm, and you also lost your bar. Uh, tell us something about it. We would like to revisit this, what happened at the time, and um, can you explain to us? Um, we don't know what's in store for us uh, 
next winter so we can see all the dynamism of the time. Well, uh, you visited me, uh, the two of you, not Wolfgang. And while we had this event, you had contacted me at the time um, whether there were any bar owners who had the courage to uh, work against this, do something for their colleagues. Now you felt um, that I was, um, uh, that you were talking to me, and I did something, and uh, then um, the police stormed in, and suddenly we had more police in the room than participants, and then they told us that we're not keeping a distance, mass mandate, yada, yada, yada. And the memorable thing was that when you were next to me, uh, as you may remember, and when I got um, the phone call with um, assassination threats uh, that went straight into uh, the stream, and uh, I said, there's something from Antifa here uh, threatening my life, and the policeman said, uh, what, um, what do you want? Uh, Antifa is, uh, well, liked in Berlin, um, so what do you want? And I thought at the time, well, that's crass, but it continued. Let me briefly add and uh, recapitulate the beginning. It was that uh, we had uh, started the initiative to use the um, lockdown to become active um, in political life by starting political parties to um, exert political will. And of course, the empty restaurants were good places to meet up and uh, together um, discuss and uh, establish political parties. And um, this was in Team Freedom at the time. And uh, parties have been founded and uh, they're called uh, Scotch and Sofa, uh, Team Fri Freedom, uh, Blue Bear, and whatever. And uh, in many cases, that went well. The point is, you have don't have to report this. Parties are under political protection. And inside the rooms, that can be done without any registrations. That's why we didn't do so. And we wouldn't have thought of doing of any necessity to do that unnecessarily. Still, the produce uh, in a party uh, foundation, of course, you can uh, give uh, people food and drink. They don't have to sit for hours um, without drinking anything. And uh, <clears throat> they were just in uh, uh, family groups, uh, or and they had masks where they needed to when they went to the bathroom. So when uh, seated, they didn't need to wear bars. Nobody did at the time. And the police saw that from outside. We streamed it live because we wanted to inspire people uh, to uh, follow this. And uh, then uh, what you just said, uh, uh, there was, I don't know, 50 policemen in the room uh, uh, stating chaos and um, pushing us all together in unhygienic uh, uh, situations. They pulled the plug so that the stream was stopped, uh, very illegal, and then there was a little report in the main, in the, the 
Tagesspiegel a newspaper and the police themselves had illegally in the report they did a report what happened in Berlin uh, they said illegal um, meeting dissolved and that is simply not true it was not illegal illegal uh, they may have uh, had a different opinion whether we stepped uh, stuck uh, sticked with the hygiene rules and I've talked to the police officer and he changed it so it was not illegal and um, it was a normal legal event but uh, apparently it was not wanted yeah because we had a hygiene concept but yes uh, we've had all the hygiene measures we had the de disinfectant and they didn't even want to see that they said we could meet again next day but in the same evening we were not allowed to although we said okay we'll go out and back in start again you see that we have a concept and uh, what you like which is what was true and with the same concept we did it again uh, two weeks later without any issues but please carry on so the uh, evening ended um, fairly uh, quickly so i had to shut down all the lights but I had some um, um, iffy feeling about this, so I stayed behind. I uh, closed everything uh, down. I stayed until 6 a.m. And then uh, suddenly eight to ten people came around at about uh, 20 to 4 a.m. And I was never um, the fearful kind. And um, I thought, well, uh, rather than wait inside before they start smashing things up. And I went outside and I um, showed my the full size of my body. I'm not a, a small person. And uh, it turned out there were fans of Raina and Viviana and of the uh, Corona Committee. And I looked at them. I can't really believe that they're between 17 and 22. We can um, sort this out or do something else or you can leave. And then they kind of disappeared. Um, that was the first time that I had a, a run-in with an Antifa. Oh, I had contact with them. It was an early night, so I tried to sleep a bit and uh, went back the next morning to uh, clean out. And I left the front door open and I hoovered the place. And then three people came in, two giants who were, um, were even 20 centimeters taller than myself and a woman and i said hello uh, what are you doing here um how did you come in and they showed me uh, uh, some sort of a badge lka whatever um well what happened here they had seen it uh, live on the stream uh, whether i knew those people who were in my bar and i said of course i know them so how how do you know well i got met them over uh, via social media uh, via telegram why well um that was a well-known thing that it was extremely right-wing and they gave me the uh, unique opportunity to do a prevention against right-wing radicalism and I, uh, they invite me to their um, um to their ward um and I said, okay, I don't need it, but it's good to hear. And this woman uh, was a spokesperson that the, the two guys stayed behind the door. And uh, she was getting 
uh, ever um, softer in her speaking, like in a bad movie, uh, asking me whether I knew what I was doing here. And if I continued doing what I'm doing, uh, that I would have to be aware of the fact that they come back the next day. Um, well, these people, I said, okay, then you can come back and protect me. That's very nice of you. And of course, I was uh, quite uh, uh, nervous, of course. I uh, played it cool, but um, I was quite nervous. And it looked like a, a Gestapo uh, method. She stayed quite calm and said uh, goodbye, very friendly. and. Uh, they all went uh, away, uh, going into a, a dark van, a very dark van. Uh, they only had a driver outside, and then it was gone. Uh, so um, where will we continue now? But then we didn't have time. Also, the people, it was planned to do it, to, to establish the party at that day. So they would have had to come back, and they couldn't. Next day, what would you want to carry on with that evening? Yeah, well, it continued. Yeah, maybe I can add something because you were not there. I was there in order to talk to the police about possible requirements which they have for the hygiene uh, concept. So I suggested that we take a walk down to uh, what we need to do still. And then I was really uh, taken by surprise because they ran up to me and wanted me to get out. I shouldn't be on the walkway. I found that I met a client there. I said I want to talk to my client, and no, I'm not allowed to stand here with the client. I have to go around the corner, and they brought me to my car uh, to get my uh, ID card out. Whether who am I, and really stop me from getting into the bar? It was uh, crazy. Well, they. Um... Uh, harassed me again and they lied and um, they said they'd do it again and I opened the bar again but uh, I uh, turned off the lights before I opened. Uh, some people had um, assembled there already some uh, friends and they claimed that I'd opened and operated the bar. I was there alone and uh, we were pushed into those measures, whatever it's called. So that was an open lie by the police at that time. And then my uh, windows uh, were um, covered in graffiti. They, um, those people have no idea of history. They called me a Nazi. Um, they said um, vaccination is uh, great. Vaccination makes you free. And um, I uh, tried to clean it because I wanted to uh, make sure that the um, uh, to stay sweet with the uh, landlord, and um, I tried to clean it away. It was also very insulting to the people around, um, like in the neighborhood. And then two weeks later, we continued. Yes, and interestingly, we had the event, an event, and the next week. I think we had registered it for that, which wasn't possible to keep the dates because people couldn't make it. And we stopped it and the police didn't note. And then uh, someone called me very concerned, a policeman said, would we want to come on the evening or not? 
so apparently there was a little counter demonstration of people all uh, in black and uh, expecting Nazis. Um, I just said, we're not going to appear that night. And immediately, I know that from a friend who was there to look at it. And uh, then two minutes after the uh, phone call with the police guy, it was uh, given to the uh, protesters that we are not going to come and they simply disappeared and then the police you would come next week will you well i we had nothing registered how do you know well oh what a pity no violence there to to do that oh, sad well people i have to leave i have to go to a party um, event tomorrow uh, yeah it um, goes with the topic so um, um, I don't mean bad, you know, um, so I have to do some work. Okay, we, we can do this on our own, no problem. Well, I saw something very sad. I have a nice neighborhood where I live, but in that area, there's always um, um, someone who uh, speaks to passers-by, um, and I didn't know that. And uh, one of those people uh, asked me whether I didn't want to join them for a, um, a discussion. And I said, no, I'm not. I have no time. But then one of my neighbors, a friend of mine, came along, and um, we always were good. And he said, well, I'm really disappointed with you. Uh, I won't talk to you anymore. And. Uh, I learned that it was regular, uh, Antifa was always uh, a big thing where the police came along and the Antifa, and that annoys people uh, locally, and it's a bit like a thorn in the side of uh, the local uh, population. I was identified with it, as, of course, absolutely crazy if a party does that sort of thing, always to uh, do that kind of show. Everyone's crazy. What I think political uh, arguments and political commitment are a good um, thing. You can uh, have a dispute, you can um, have elections, you can win it or lose it. That's all uh, good and well. But it's always tied into uh, this right-wing narrative, the Nazis. I'm, I used to be the... Um, uh, deputy uh, chair of the uh, socialists um, in um, uh, the Council of Europe, and um, I was a, an MP for the SPD until I uh, got disappointed and disillusioned with the SPD um, uh, with his false pandemic. Of course, I went along, so I w did look for people where we can actually uh, voice this, so I kept my political activities up, uh, and when you do that sort of thing, you never know who you meet. And of course, there are some moles, and, and some people go there just because they want to uh, want to smash things up, uh, want to destroy what's being um, built up there. Um, I know that, but you can't dispense with political engagement because of that. You have to deal with this. I never uh, changed over the years. I fight for democracy, for freedom, and against those people who want to inject fascistoid elements into um, society. And I find that um, 
shocking that my neighbors start avoiding me just because of the, uh, the, these goings on there. That hurt me. And then I was uh, accosted by the uh, owner of this pizzeria. He, uh, I wouldn't have thought of that of you. And he hardly um, dares sell me a pizza anymore. Imagine. And I, I really was shocked. Well, I uh, think you have to say that kind of political uh, commitment that you're actually being used to show the people what uh, evil people uh, those uh, we are, that's nonsense. That's question with the good neighbors in Prenzlau Berg, where I am. Um, they were in my bar. I was always in my bar from dusk to dawn. I got cameras, uh, how great it's good, how safe they feel, that I'm always there and keep everything nice. They, little garden in front of the uh, door. Uh, one day later, they didn't look at me anymore. Uh, when I walked up to them, they turned around and walked away. Yeah, that's what happened to me, yeah. Well, let's go into detail uh, about this um, later on. But it's, I think it's important to look at this again um, because we maybe we didn't forget things, but we kind of brush it aside. What well, I know about you, but if you uh, look back, it was an incredible, brutal um, activity there. And it hit me with my shop as well. I really find that uh, this, this is monstrous, really. And it's so dividing and unjustified. It's completely incomprehensible uh, why why they. I have never I haven't met a single Nazi. And I've met people who uh, are against the measures. Say we don't want to do that. We want to organize ourselves. But uh, I have not seen anybody uh, against foreigners or any other. Uh, sayings like that, any ethnic or religious distastes, nothing. I would have been against this of immediately. Course. And I think it's so, it's uh, a very effective propaganda that splits up the people and makes them think uh, and makes it very easy to judge. And it's it's simple, simply horrible. Well, go on, Saren. Well, I had uh, spoken about the graffitis and I tried to remove them. I couldn't really, unfortunately, because they use permanent markers, etc. All sorts of things that you can't really clean away. And then two or three weeks later, we had a continuation. And that time, the party was, the founding was accompanied by the police. The police said they would protect us. Very good. Uh, chief of the police and, and nothing happened we could all complete it and do it and that was okay and there were people outside who filmed us and and, and yeah. tried to so disturb they were us kept outside and that was all okay and safe well then um i uh, soon got um, a, a notice on my lease by the landlord um I really wanted to do one thing to be politically active, which is so important today, and to create a perspective. And I thought I'd do really something good for uh, people and for the other barkeepers like myself or bar owners. And then, unfortunately, uh, people came up to me and said, uh, honestly, 
that I destroyed the uh, perspective for their future. Their uh, hygiene concept was um, um, undermined now. Well, the hygiene concept, what do you think? Do you really believe you're opening again tomorrow? Don't you see what you're hap what's happening here? You're not opening again tomorrow, maybe never anymore. Uh, not like it used to be anyway. It won't be like uh, you just meet uh, people at night with uh, strange people and... Uh, um, dancing with each other, you know, um, Dutch people, Americans, Frenchmen, um, they um, dance drunkenly. That will never happen anymore. Um, so I had to uh, go to court over this with the landlord. And after the bar had been closed really for a long time, it was dark every night. Uh, the, the uh, lovely Antifa was on site again, and I can tell that it was Antifa. And they, um, uh, in the middle of the night, one o'clock, one something, um, I'd called you, they uh, destroyed, uh, they, they smashed in uh, the windows, uh, my um, glass cases, and then they went up the street and they actually went uh, to. Um, to the bank where they actually um, worked on uh, reinforced glass with hammers. So um, that woke me up. I had um, slept, I've been sleeping already. Then a uh, SWAT team uh, by the police came along. Um, well, actually, somebody came as a, a trainee came with a small case, um, like a laptop. And I thought, no, you'll send a, a special team who take fingerprints, etc. No, no, he just took a few uh, pictures and said uh, it's not only because of uh, today's uh, uh, period, um, spoiler alarm, etc. No, he said um, uh, the gloves were uh, very important, so put on two uh, old gloves and um, collected a few uh, shards of glass and I uh, presented a few uh, stones to him and asking, asked him, don't you want to take those along as evidence? said, nah, keep them. So I have to say I had expected something else. There had been threats. There were several uh, assassination threats via uh, Twitter. And an Antifa command had posted my uh, photo saying this Nazi um, harbors Nazis and uh, with my name and address and everything. So was I had, uh, had to close all of my social media uh, contacts, my Google account was hacked, and, well, it continued with these um, threats, and what we saw that the same, the same, very same three people, you didn't know them, but I knew them, so we had a party event um, uh, at some stage, and uh, suddenly the two uh, men were there again, the woman in the background and I thought well I know them and he said he asked me how is your bar doing and he grinned diabolically and said like what well, what are you talking about well we were uh, doing the um, the investigation at the time and he said okay what how is your bar doing what do you do and so they um, intermingled with people incognito and um, Viviana said um, that LKA or um, uh, Secret Service or whatever um, 
that they walk around and uh, spy on people and even harass me. And so they put on their um, vests, this yellow vest, and they continued and they looked into their uh, mobile phones all the time. Um, and I wonder, like, wh uh, why are you focusing on me? And um, someone was standing next to me. I think you knew him even. And it doesn't matter what his name is. And they picked him out. That was a very strange situation. I was even talking to that person. He was a participant, simply. And then suddenly they said, this person has to be arrested. And uh, I said, why was that? And I said, well, uh, it turned out that uh, they didn't pay their parking ticket. Uh, and I said, you're not going to uh, arrest people because of a 20 euro parking ticket. Okay, here's the 20 euros. No, 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 we can't do that. So very, very unbelievable story. Normally, I'm not arrested because of a parking ticket. There has to be lots of things going on before that. And they pretended like they were looking, they po uh, pointed at him. And then they took him away to the police station. And then uh, he came back, uh, uh, came back out after 30 minutes and they were very happy. Uh, what a funny show is that to spark fear? What, what's that, all that? You had the same people in another event. At several events, actually, uh, funny enough, not not funny really. If you know the old uh, Gestapo methods, you'll know that they um, spoke to people by name. And I kept seeing the three same people at all the demonstrations that I attended, and they uh, immediately um, gesticulated and appointed me. They always uh, um, addressed me with my name, my full name, and they um, uh, joke around. And, and one thing that happened at the Brandenburg gates, uh, one of the organizers wanted to uh, speak to uh, one of the uh, demonstrators and the three were suddenly there and then a corridor opened up um, it was almost like slapped slapstick and then uh, it closed again and uh, they uh, the antifa were gone so it's uh, pretty obvious who works hand in hand here in berlin uh, one more thing in this context on the second evening when nothing happened in the bar uh, Oval Media was there, Robert Siebes and others uh, wanted to film what's going on now. And then somebody came in then and uh, kicked out the camera from the hand so to break it. And I said, well, we know who it is who did that and uh, wanted to take the data and, uh, of course, uh, for liability. And then um, they took the, all the... Uh, yeah, personal data from Oval Media, and the person who did it was gone. And they said, oops, uh, well, we don't know where he went to. Uh, so that's very strange. And, um, that reminds me of uh, when I got the mail from the court indicating, uh, from the, sorry, the public prosecutor uh, indicating uh, that the um, Proceedings um, for uh, you know uh, compensation for the uh, damages uh, done when they smashed my windows um, had been um, discontinued, well. and the same three people I met them in Pankow again um, at the level of the town hall. That's here in Berlin as well. One of them 
was in disguise and played like he was uh, one of us. And I uh, took my um, mobile out and filmed it. And then um, the person who pretended like he was Antifa uh, approaching me uh, put his hands on the back. Um, nobody in that scene would do that. Uh, and asked me, uh, threatening, what am I doing um, that wasn't legal to film here? And I asked, like, who are you? And then he uh, turned around, went away, and then I went down the wide streets, and then I met the three again. And uh, they had a different agent provocateur um, um, who was wearing a um, um, jogging suit. And, uh, they pushed him into a van, um, but they noticed that, three, uh, that I had... Um, uh, filmed it, and they um, he came up again to me and said, "If I p uh, publish that on the network on on the public social media, then that would have significant consequences for me." So they um, have um, provocateurs there, and um, it's crazy, and it works. That's that's about it. I see that with my neighbors. I see how it works. I don't think uh, after me anybody uh, tried that again. No, there were a few who did that, but not so visible. Um, some of them uh, did it more calmly, like... Uh, well, it's like, you know, I'm on the floor and I'm still kicked in. I still get non-stop yellow, yellow letters. Whatever uh, uh, court sends letters to me, even the work uh, agency uh, is writing to me because years ago I'm supposed to have... Uh, had somebody uh, paying wrong uh, salaries, and uh, I had to register as un unemployed, and uh, they helped me for three months, and then they stopped paying. And uh, everybody has a right to uh, social benefits, and I have a right that uh, at least the rent should be paid for me. and. Uh, the, they rejected that because they wanted to know the term, to know the turnover. Um, I said, "What turnover?" And uh, I'm closed my bar a year ago, and I don't get any Corona support. I'm in in bankruptcy since uh, February. So what uh, Corona help will I get? My bank accounts are blocked by the tax offices since uh, 15th of March 21. So I won't be able to open a bank account. I know what that is, the situation, people with people who don't follow the German rules. And uh, that's the situation so far, and they carry on. It was not enough to uh, throw me on the floor. They have to kick my head in. It's crazy that they, um, they're like dogs who won't let go anymore, like bulldogs. I'll have to take a look at this in um, uh, legal terms as well, but the situation is really monstrous because the whole thing wasn't illegal to start with. That's the crazy thing. And subsequently, a protest march uh, formed going from your bar to my shop in a third place, and then they wrote well, my, my shop was on Rosa Luxemburg um, um, Square. Uh, since 2006, I'd been there and had the Babylon team right next to me. So it was a nice community there. And that's where all the hygiene demonstrations 
had their uh, focal point basically, uh, so they passed uh, in front and they said, well, hello, uh, hat prize, uh, prize winner. It was written on my uh, shop window. I didn't lose my shop. And I was wondering how would this develop and uh, uh, the shop was up for uh, uh, the next lease uh, period and um, I can't really sell hats uh, to people while they have to be wearing masks. I, I thought you can't do that and at the time you couldn't be sure whether you'd be uh, safe. Um, that was a, a corner where you could work at night, uh, developing, designing hats, and you knew that nobody would come in, um, even if the door wasn't locked. Uh, now, uh, if I'd been, maybe not attacked, but if I'd been harassed uh, or insulted, um, um, but at the same time, if I'd continued it there, they probably uh, would have tried to harass me there. Does that happen in other cities as well? Have you heard that from other cities, or is that in Berlin specifically? With an Antifa thing? Well, yes. I think the major cities, Hamburg, Bremen, is the same thing, but Berlin always was um, leftist, green, um, even though you don't know what the parties really want. It was always a very special situation in Berlin. And this uh, crazy um, financial um, subsidies that they get from the Federation, they never, they could do what they want. They... I only experienced this once uh, in the beginning. I've been a high school teacher for over 10 years, always good. I always got good uh, feedback from students. It was all very nice with the colleagues as well. And then when I did that uh, film, making clear that I'm critical, uh, against the measures, then I suddenly got told by the uh, university saying it's not good. I gave interviews with someone who is uh, right-wing. And I wondered who, who could that have been because I hadn't noted it was journalists and I didn't know them. I have no TV. Uh, it was Eva Hammonds. Um, and so I got charged that I did an interview with her, whom I didn't know, I said so. And uh, if she were rest uh, right wing, I'm sorry. But uh, if I had known, I wouldn't have given an interview. Um, but the uh, university management asked me, professors called me personally, you have, don't take that personally, but you know the situation as it is. Um, they know something is wrong. And uh, then I uh, did a Zoom call with the uh, chair of the university. It was four students, female students, and they didn't say anything all the time. And in the, begin in the end, the director asked them, after I've explained uh, why um, I, I think that this is no pandemic as I know it, and um, uh, then the, uh, the university doesn't, well, he's worse than we had thought, that was their comment, and uh, then the uh, co-teacher said, well, We'll have to see what we can. We have to do, and they recommended me to leave because they don't want to have the trouble uh, with the university and uh, my students. I think it was twenty, 
um, they called me and say, what a, what a thing to do. The students knew this. And um, with a colleague that I worked together, I thought they thought I would was extremist left. Uh, because I challenged the health system. I wanted to have that in governmental control and not a profit model, business model, uh, to be that something that uh, is organized by the people. It's rather socialistic ideas. And uh, I was absolutely surprising uh, that the university and the other teachers didn't react they all shied away. No, nobody who said something. And of course, then I couldn't be bothered to to teach at the university. It was horrible and a great pity for me. Uh, a very sad event. So they were from Antifa as well. There was one professor who was uh, behind all this who was also funded by uh, the Amadeus Foundation, I think. Uh, she, she gets uh, the monies, the money, uh, but she didn't appear herself, but other people from the university said, said um, she is together with these students. Um, so they were used to, to go there and say this. Basically, uh, at this uh, demonstration in Weimar, in honor of um, Judge Deckmann, in parallel, um, there was the Verdi demonstration. It's a um, trade union. It was the first of May, I believe, and they were to uh, put down flowers, and all the judges, uh, the uh, lawyers, were to come in their uh, gowns. And uh, the president of the uh, local court had basically uh, Casa Paranoia out of her uh, court. Everything was um, uh, blocked off, uh, and so this demonstration happened elsewhere. And this Verdi uh, people had been there and were allowed to be there. And the demonstrators then were uh, trapped. Um, those who were there because of uh, Judge Detma um, harassed, and God knows what. And there was other uh, details as well. And there was another Antifa uh, group there. Um, and I said, well, why can't we talk to each other? Who's the boss there? And there's uh, this woman came towards me. And I started to, uh, tried to start to talk to her. And uh, she just went away. So you couldn't really talk to them. Um, and she avoided any discussion immediately. Um, I don't know if she had three masks or what. Uh, anyway, she was really afraid, and maybe she had a um, problem being seen uh, talking to us. Who knows? But if you just prick them a bit, uh, you can see that um, they exhale their air immediately. I had this in, an experience in Kappen for the federal um, elections with the SPD. I did a market stand there. That was quite nice. And then suddenly uh, somebody else put up their stand next to us from the NPD, uh, the National Democratic Party. And uh, <clears throat> we ignored them, talked to our people, SPD, that was uh, accepted. Uh, and then suddenly masked uh, black people, uh, people with black masks came in, I think six or four or more. 
and simply pulled down and boat beated everything up, booted everything quite brutal. And we were there uh, wondering what's that. And the policeman was there. There was a policeman, and he got one of them. Hold him, got hold of him, and uh, arrested him, but nothing happened, interestingly enough. Well, they uh, still spent weeks demonstrating in front of my bar, and they actually wrote a uh, um, corona denier uh, out of our uh, neighborhood. Uh, they weren't from the neighborhood themselves, none of them. Um, they'd all been uh, brought in. And um, uh, there was a photo that was uh, distributed all over the uh, city, and you can actually uh, see uh, my uh, my badge, uh, Scotch and Sofa, on my chest as well. At that thing, I had the uh, impression it was all staged. They put it up, uh, using them to be murderers, to be, it was really like a theater play. Crazy. Well, the NPD couldn't be uh, prohibited um, because um, they are so uh, undermined with members of the Secret Service that you can't really uh, tell who's uh, right-wing <coughs> radical and who's um, Secret Service. and then the. Uh, the state would um, bas uh, basically harass itself. It's crazy. Well, if they were, nobody took care of them. That's why they became important because of that uh, uh, violence there, and that uh, that pushed them all up. That made it a topic in the news. Otherwise, nobody would have interested them, been interested. Nobody came to see them to speak to them. Maybe that's a way uh, to um, grab money um, from people who run anti-right-wing campaigns, and they uh, maybe they show a bit of um, show that there's a, a potential for violence there. I don't know really what's happening in those uh, groups, but uh, there was this video that, where the French Antifa. Um, complain that there's no real Antifa in Germany anymore, but that they are really people who are used for that sort of stunt. Well, for a long time, when I was in politics as well, and before, there was an anti-fascistic movement uh, which, where the SPD said, yes, we, we uh, were very committed in that against uh, um, all, the, all these things, xenografia, xenophia, and uh, in Heiligendamm, when they had the G7 uh, meeting, there was a black block there as well, with loads of people there. Um, and there was a black group, and they were quite silent, and suddenly the police, and suddenly they started to throw stones. Uh, throwing stones, and then the police started to move this group to the port where everybody else was, so that the police uh, moved everything off because they uh, threw stone. That was very strange. I quickly got away from that. 
Looks like staged, yeah. I can tell you, uh, with the demonstrations, I had to deal with those people so much. Uh, they're people, but not anti-fascists. And they always have a few people in the background who are older, who uh, stand around. Um, there's always uh, age range 15 to 23, and then these uh, three, four, or five um, um, people, hired hands, who um, who they tell what to do. What's really deplorable uh, with this story is uh, it was my dream, this bar, that you have to give it away, and you have nothing left, all the investments gone. Um, and then uh, privately, of course, a uh, few people uh, see that I am a, um, a Nazi now for uh, my um, for what we used to be my friends. Well, I was in or out with my hat cut. It's always been like it is, as it is now. I never cared much. Well, they were all, my brothers were always very, very conform. And now uh, I see there's uh, no point and I have no contact with my family anymore. Uh, they uh, clearly cast me out as Nazi, as a criminal, whatever they called me. One of them even told me, he even advised me, uh, I should uh, just take the injection. Go take to take needle. the needle. What kind of a um, wording is that even? Well, it's perfectly staged. That's what it should lead to, splitting up through all separation in all institutions. The good thing is I got to know new people, for example, here. And, and the people who do this, they do something wrong. They are simply misguided. Uh, I don't think that these young students at the Unity, who got them to do this? Who can uh, indoctrinate young people in the way that they don't ask without knowing anybody uh, to do these things? And they, they simply go along to destroy an existence. It's easier. it's easier to go along than to oppose it. So there has to be somebody who bends them and and baits them and whatever uh, how they how they guide them to do this it would be interesting to learn more about this um, but it's probably not uh, easy it's from from the inside like the inside track very sad it's not an well sure and one door closes another one opens yeah, I'm optimistic as well. Things will go on, life will go on. I'm in process. I'm in good contact with good people. And maybe I'll open a bar, another bar one day um, after my insolvency proceedings are over. And give fascists no chance. The true fascists, yes. Well, we are the supposed fascists, but not the true ones. So we know that inverted victims and so on. Anyway. Well, I think things will um, shake themselves out, uh, but I think it, it was good to review this. It's crass, really. Well, everybody who uh, is engaged against the current policy, fear of that treatment, and of course, all the resistance can be destroyed by that because people get scared. 
But that's the important thing. We have to tell everybody, uh, don't be afraid. I always approach these three people. Uh, aggressive would be the wrong word, but offensively, uh, decidedly. And I uh, just uh, say hello. Um, what a coincidence to meet you again here. Fancy seeing you. And then he sends someone else, um, and who sent uh, uh, someone else over to me who I didn't know. And he came uh, very close, and I um, sent him on his way. Um, by way of conclusion, don't be intimidated, because that is exactly what they want, the fear of hysteria nonstop. And don't get provoked either. I think as a party, one shouldn't put up a stand where you have these teams uh, everywhere. But you have this problem everywhere. We have to have more ideas on how to do that better, to be more smart, outsmart them, not get into that polarization. But it's also not helpful not to react at all. We, we have to think of uh, how we can uh, develop better ideas of how to respond to this. Well, we want to do things different than the other parties, parties do. Well, the idea with the perambulators, that was a good one. Um, um, suddenly, they didn't know who to oppose, what to do with. I think the decentralized and spontaneous elements, I think these are the things that are important. And above all, if you have your uh, opinion, you should voice it. That applies to everyone. Um, everyone who criticizes the government, um, that must be allowed in a democracy. That's okay to say, I don't like this. Good. So I think that takes us through. Thank you for that final word, Wolfgang. And um, Rainer said, we've got two video clips to play. And uh, I just wanted to point out uh, that we depend on donations for our work. And if you want to do so, uh, you can see that we have a new bank account. And we'd be happy that we can, if we can carry on with our work. And I think in the near future, we're going to see a bigger um, uh, topic coming back up uh, in terms of health because uh, people will try to give us a hot autumn. Uh, despite of all the touching uh, content in the end, I wish everybody a nice uh, Friday evening and a good weekend. See you next week. In the world has a secret government behind it that run the show. If you think that the president, the prime minister, you think they're doing it, they're puppets, a hundred percent puppets. They control armies, nations, governments, all the money in the world, all the richest families in the world, Rothschilds and the Rockefellers. And I can tell you already one thing, that anyone that somehow made money within a very short span of time has to be part of it. And you think that Mike Zuckerberg owns Facebook? He's a puppet. Facebook was created for their manipulation same thing with youtube same thing with whatsapp and instagram and netflix and everything how did netflix became so big within two years only with the power of the ultimate un endless money of the world and it's much more than that world war one was designed by them world war ii designed by them people reserve which people think be belongs to the american government doesn't belong to the government even it's a private organization nasa CIA, the assassination of JFK, who was the first one who ever talked about it, 
got a bullet in his head. And needless to say, the attack on the Twin Towers, it wasn't Bin Laden. It was all one big agenda because they needed to go to Afghanistan. You know why? To put pipes in the sea. It's all one big show. We're being fooled and, and millions of Americans are cheering. We're going to a, a, a war against terror. No, you've been fooled. And you think it's different in Israel? You know that Israel was built by the Freemasons, by the way, by the Zionists. There's nothing here kosher. Who approved? Who approved the Declaration of Israel? The United Nations, of course. An organization of peace and unity and we love all. It's a terror organization built by the New World Order. And they approved the Declaration of Eretz Israel. All the founders of the country of Israel are Freemasons. Good evening, sheep. Our top stories tonight. Biden falls off his bike, which is not hilarious. Transgender athletes are now banned from women swimming. The Clinton body count goes up. Shocker. Stephen Colbert's staff breaches the Capitol. And Biden's daughter's diary contains shocking accusations against him. What's it say? Stay tuned to find out. But first, we're proud to be building back better than ever now that the stock market is crashing, crypto is crashing, gas prices are through the roof, food shortages, record high inflation, and rising interest rates. As we are now in a recession, President Brandon reassures us that we are not heading into a recession. In other news, we don't know what the term gaslighting means. And happy Father's Day from this past weekend. President Biden celebrated Father's Day by falling off his bike while he was standing still. What an athlete. Let's see that again. Looks like Putin did it. And we have received early word that the X Games will be featuring a new extreme sporting event this year called Standing Up as it is a significant challenge for even the fully mentally and physically competent leader of the free world. And in honor of Father's Day, as Hunter's dad is obviously one of the greatest fathers in the world, a powerful example that you can learn from of how he lovingly fathers his crack addict son that he raised is how he used his personal secret police force, the FBI, to try to hide the existence of his son's laptop that allegedly contained highly incriminating information. Another great example of his fathering is how he used the Secret Service to intervene with Hunter's gun, as Hunter had committed a felony when he lied on the firearms application. But an even more impressive example of his fathering is how he used the FBI to read the homes of two Project Veritas journalists while trying to obtain a diary written by his daughter, Ashley, which contained highly incriminating accusations against her father, which is your president. For more on this endearing act of fathering, we'll throw it over to Tucker Carlson. So why? were the FBI coming to the homes of employees at Project Veritas. What did they do? Were they involved in a human smuggling ring? Were they bringing fentanyl in from China and killing more Americans? No. The FBI believed that Project Veritas was in possession of or had information about a diary written by Joe Biden's daughter, Ashley Biden. The FBI claimed that diary had been stolen. We now know the FBI knew that diary had not been stolen, and it wasn't. But as James O'Keefe pointed out at the time, 
and didn't have enough people hear him when he said it. What if it was stolen? Having a stolen diary is not a federal crime. So what in that diary was so important that Joe Biden sent FBI agents to get it back? Here's what O'Keefe said. The tipsters indicated that the diary included explosive allegations against then-candidate Joe Biden. I don't see anything wrong with any of that, and neither should you. But what are the shocking accusations that Ashley Biden wrote in her own diary against her father? Well, nothing disturbing if you don't have a soul. So let's find out more from Tucker Carlson. What's in the diary? And now we know what's in the diary, thanks to a new piece in the Daily News, which has a copy of the diary. Josh Boswell is a reporter there at the Daily Mail. He broke this story, and he joins us with the answer. Hi, Tucker. Josh, thanks so much for coming on. What is this about? So we've looked at the diary. Um, we've spent a, a lot of time considering carefully what to report from it. And um, what we've chosen to report are some pretty serious things that Ashley, the president's daughter, wrote. She wrote that she was musing over whether her father was sexually inappropriate with her when she was a little girl. She mentions in the diary showers with her dad. Um, she also talks about them being probably not appropriate. Um, she writes that down on one page in her diary. And she also refers to being hypersexualized at a young age. There's a lot of references in the diary to her um, repeated uh, spells in, in uh, rehab, her um, relapses with drug abuse, alcohol, and sex addiction as well. Just sounds like good fathering. And I do wonder why Biden is such a fan of sexualized drag shows for children. But some critics suggest that those shows for children are wrong and that those same drag queens should follow Biden's example and stop dancing for children for God's sakes and just start showering with them instead. In other news, a former Clinton advisor named Mark Middleton has been found hanging in a tree with a gunshot blast to his chest. His death has obviously been ruled a suicide, which means yet another person heavily linked to the Clintons has unfortunately committed suicide. Wow, sounds like there's nothing to see here. So let's hear more. After a Freedom of Information Act request, it was discovered that Mr. Middleton admitted Jeffrey Epstein, who is a pedophile, another unfortunate suicide victim, and someone with heavy ties to the Clintons, into the White House on seven different occasions while Clinton was in office. Mark Middleton also had the immense pleasure of flying on Epstein's private jet and is rumored to have been a major player in strengthening Epstein's relationship with Bill Clinton. I think this is nothing but heartwarming to hear because we all know how important friendships are for having a happy life. But because Mr. Middleton didn't leave a suicide note, there's unfortunately no explanation for why someone committed suicide on him. And with countless Clinton associates having committed suicide over the years, we would like to thank the Clintons for altruistically spending so much time with vast numbers of suicidal people in what is obviously an attempt to try to help them. And in other news that hasn't been completely scrubbed from the internet for some reason, the original name for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation was the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation for Population Control. Take a look. 1998, Dr. Zabin became the founding director of the Bill and Melinda Gates Institute for Population Control. 
with a mission to help de developing countries create their own reproductive health policies and programs. Huh. I wonder why they called it that. Moving along. On Sunday, the world's swimming governing body voted to ban transgender athletes from competing in women's competition. With a 71.5% vote in favor of the ban, spokesperson James Pierce said the reason for the ban is, it's what the scientists are saying, that if you transition after the start of puberty, you have an advantage, which is unfair. <laughs> I doubt that. I guess they haven't heard the latest science that stated there are no biological differences between men and women. Yet, because the non-existent differences are so distinct, some people will go through drastic hormone therapies and surgeries in order to have more of the biological differences of their chosen sex. Science is so exact sometimes that it's confusing. And with the banning of trans athletes, this marks the end of an exciting time in women's swimming. So to help commemorate the sad ending of the golden era in women's swimming, let's take a look back down memory lane at some highlights of some of the best biological males to have ever competed in women's swimming while they could. I'm not crying, you're crying. And in other news, former comedian and current communist subverter Stephen Colbert is in some hot water. Nine producers and staff members from his show have been arrested at the Capitol building and charged with unlawful entry. Turns out they were found illegally snooping outside the offices of some GOP Congress members. This means Stephen Colbert's team has breached the Capitol in what objectively looks like an insurrection. But luckily, his team is not expected to be illegally held in solitary confinement for a year and a half, like those dirty right-wing ultra-mega insurrectionists from January 6th were. The difference is that Colbert's staffers unlawfully entered the Capitol building, while some of those right-wing dirty insurrectionists were escorted into the Capitol building by security guards. That's it for tonight's indoctrination. Enjoy the recession. It's a necessary part of the Great Reset. And if you know the Clintons, you better keep your mouth shut. And Biden is father of the year. Oh yeah, and Biden's been accused of rape. Believe all women, but not this one. But Kamala Harris did say she believes all Biden's accusers, but whatever. Good night. What's up, my friend? If you're like me and you...